You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Quarterly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. Pool Party Radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod Everyone knows the glorious story of the child born in a faraway manger. Well, this isn't that story. This is Monty Python's all-new Life of Brian. He was born into the golden age of Roman rule. Do we have any crucifixions today? 139, sir. Special celebration. It was a time of miracles. I was blind, now I can see. Friendly persuasion and gracious invaders. But there was just one thing on everyone's mind. Sex, 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 that's all I think about her. In those days, getting stoned wasn't against the law. It was the law. Things looked bad for the people of Jerusalem. Still a few crosses left. Until Brian dropped in. He was a born leader. Brothers, brothers, we should be struggling together. We are. A potential martyr. What would they do to me? Oh, you'll probably get away with crucifixion. Crucifixion? Yeah. First offense. And his mother's joy. And now it's up to Brian to deliver a despairing nation from the throes of oppression. <laughs> Tough luck, Jerusalem. This is the life of Brian. Just when you thought you were saved. It's Monty Python's Life of Brian. He wasn't the Messiah. He was a very naughty boy. Terrific race, the Romans. Terrific. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me, Mr. Mike White. And at this time, a friend shall lose his friend's hammer. Boy, this is fucking ponderous, man. 
ponderous, fucking ponderous. And this week, joining us, special guest host, our friend, Ken Stanley. How you guys doing? It's a pleasure to be with you. All right. Well, thank you. This week, we're looking at the 1979 film Life of Brian, the second feature film from the legendary British comedy troupe Monty Python's Flying Circus, and finds the lads in Roman-occupied Judea circa 33 AD, a time when the Jews are being oppressed and a messiah needs to be found. And uh, no, it's not Brian. He just happened to be born in the manger down the alley from Jesus. Life of Brian tells the tale of Brian of Nazareth, a regular chap played by Graham Chapman, who, uh, through a few twists and turns, ends up at sort of a funhouse mirror version of the Gospels and sort of a similar fate to that Jesus fellow. Causing a scandal upon its release, Life of Brian is a film today that's considered by many one of the finest comedies to come out of the UK. So Ken is our guest. Uh, When was the first time you saw Life of Brian and what did you think? Well, I saw it on its initial release back in 19... It was officially released 1979. I don't remember if Detroit was a select city because it started in select cities. So I think we were a select city back then. We're not a select city now. So I think it was 79, the end of 79. And I had already been a Python fan for like five years already. So I was satisfied. I was happy with it when I first saw it. As for you, Mr. Mike? Gosh, I probably saw this one on VHS... Oh, late 80s, mid 80s, something like that. And I want to say that they used to play it on cable fairly regularly, which sounds a little odd saying it, but I'm pretty sure that I do remember just kind of jumping into it and catching it from various points along the way. As for me, I saw this on VHS probably around the same time you were saying, late 80s. And my folks were Python fans. Monty Python's Flying Circus used to play in reruns on a PBS station in Detroit quite a bit. And I remember that uh, seeing this and Meaning of Life and Holy Grail on VHS probably all around the same time, like right after we got our VCR. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, Python. Like I said, I had already been familiar with them. I saw when the PBS started showing the series, it was around 74, I think. Between 74 and 79, you'd already had a chance to see the entire series two or three times by then because they kept continually playing the series. So this was kind of a big deal in that it was the first new Monty Python material since Holy Grail, and that had been about... I don't know, four years or something. So it was kind of exciting for that reason alone. There's still some Monty Python out there that I'm not that familiar with, especially those like that last season when they would be like those hour long adventures, like the Mr. Bicycle Repairman and all that kind of stuff. But when I catch those, I'm always happy to see them. But it seemed like they played the first few seasons to death. It was just different. It was odd. Went from 69 to 74 were the original series. And after that point, it, I don't know, it just didn't click the way the original stuff did. There was a season without John Cleese and then the odd hour-long series. And that just, I was something odd about it. Just didn't seem like classic Python. We should get into the plot on this uh, Life of Brian here, gents. So, uh, so it starts off like uh, what you'd expect, the story of Jesus. Right, We see the wise men, and they're uh, heading into town uh, looking for the manger to uh, find uh, Mary and Joseph and uh, the baby Jesus. But they uh, stumble on someone else. Yes, they come up with the um, 
the Virgin Mandy, played by Terry Jones, the director of the film, who's uh, – I was trying to explain to my wife today, we were watching Holy Flying Circus, which we'll talk about a little bit later, and she wasn't really getting this whole idea of people's wives being played by men in drag, and she's just like – is his wife supposed to be really ugly? Is that why it's a man? <laughs> like, no. <laughs> Just all, almost all of the female characters are played by men, or at least the, the, the majority of the female characters are played by men. So, yeah. And, uh, Terry Jones, he, he does a really good job as a woman because he's got a very high voice and, uh, he, he does a great job as Mandy. She starts questioning the wise men as to, uh, you know, actually, how wise are they? We are three wise men. Well, what are you doing creeping around a car shed at two o'clock in the morning? That doesn't sound very wise to me. We are astrologers. We have come from the east. Is this some kind of joke? We wish to praise the infant. We must pay homage to him. Homage? You drunk? It's disgusting. Alf, come on, Alf. No, Burst him here with tales about oriental fortune tellers. Come on, Alf. No, no, we must see him. Go and praise someone else's brat. Go on. We were led by a star. Led by a bottle of all I got out. We must see him. We have brought presents. Out. Gold, frankincense, ma. Well, why didn't you say he's over there? So eventually they realize their mistake and head off to the, uh, the actual place they should be, which uh, I guess was rather obvious because there's a of course an ethereal glow coming from that manger just down the alley which leads us into the opening credit sequence and I had to say much like um, what we get used to from uh, Holy Grail and we do see it um, in the TV show especially in the opening and the interstitials all of the great uh, animations created by uh, Terry Gilliam for the opening credit sequence it was interesting that we only get this one one animated sequence you know i'm used to even in holy grail you know having god be an animated character or the the creature in the caves and all this having animation kind of sprinkled throughout and this one is just limited to these opening credits well i think uh i listened to one of the commentary tracks on the criterion edition and terry gilliam it seemed like he was expressing that he really wasn't interested in doing that much of that. He, he had thrown himself into the uh, production design aspect, and his focus was there. And aside from that uh, credit sequence and uh, the outer space bit, uh, he was more or less focused on the uh, his performances and uh, the production design. And I think a lot of that animation stuff, both in the TV show and Holy Grail, owes a lot to the fact that they needed stuff to get them from point A to point B, or they, uh, I guess with Holy Grail, basically shot what they had and didn't really have a lot of extra stuff. So they had to figure a way to stitch this stuff together. And I think by the time they got to, to Life of Brian, they actually knew how to make a film and didn't have to rely so much on, okay, now do some cut-up animation and get us from here to there. Yeah, this has much more of a traditional-type film narrative than uh, anything they had done prior. Yeah, I was kind of surprised re-watching this yesterday I thought that the kind of the parallels to Jesus were a little bit more mixed throughout, but we really don't get that kind of stuff again until much later in the film. Instead, we go from Brian as infant to Brian as 33-year-old listening to, you know, the, we open with the Sermon on the Mount and uh, Brian being very far away and no one being able to, to hear Jesus. 
that and then it's really kind of more like uh brian's life for a long time and the parallels to jesus kind of really don't come along until what would you say like the third act or just the tail end of the second act it's it's kind of late in the game i thought that it was mixed in a little bit more not to say that it felt uneven but i was kind of surprised at the pacing yesterday when i was rewatching this well there wasn't much in the bible about jesus's puberty you know (laughs) very Uh, true uh, the missing years the missing years yeah that's when he went out on those benders on the weekend and it's a total blackout like nobody knows exactly what happened (laughs) exactly yeah but i love that scene as you were talking about the whole um sermon on the mount and the folks are in the back and they can't quite hear it so they're coming up with their own versions of uh, what exactly it is he's saying do you mind i can't hear a word he's saying don't you do you mind me i was talking to my husband well go and talk to him somewhere else i can't hear a bloody thing don't you swear my wife i was only asking her to shut up so he can hear what he's saying big nose yeah blessed are the greek or blessed is the greek which Greek? Who is it? Right. <laughs> well, apparently he's going to inherit the earth. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, it's the meek. Yeah. And the cheesemakers. Let's not forget that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I say that every day, practically. I love cheese, so blessed are the cheesemakers. Well, it's not cheese per se. It's really more all dairy products. <laughs> exactly. And I love how, like, after the the sermon is over, that there's the critics who walk by. And this, of course, is our first introduction to uh, the Judean People's Front. No, no, no. no. The People's Front of Judea. Oh, yeah, right. that's right. I always get those right, two confused. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, John Cleese. Basically, you know, if, if you know the Pythons, you know they play multiple roles in this film. And they're walking by and they're talking about what their problems with <laughs> – Jesus' philosophy is. Well, blessed is just about everyone with a vested interest in the status quo, as well as I can tell, Rich. Yeah, well, what Jesus blatantly fails to appreciate is it's the meek who are the problem. Yes, yes, absolutely, Rich. Yes, I see. Yeah, it's that armchair criticism that we get on like Fox News now where it's like everything that the president says, they've got the pundits there on various news channels dissecting it and you know, kind of correcting the record and criticizing and everything. So I really appreciated that those folks were around all the way, you know, at the turn of the millennium. <laughs> which which I think would probably have been true. I mean, if you watch any biblical epic, of course, it's like, oh, here you go. You know, here's, you know, whether it's the Ten Commandments or you're watching, you know, I don't know, the robe like we were talking about on the Caligula episode or something. It's like, oh, yes, you know, here you go. Here's the information. And like nobody's there to like go, huh? What? Like, really? Like, like nobody, nobody asks any questions. Well, I think for me, that's what makes Monty Python. That's why they were a revelation when they first hit, because the target of their humor was different from traditional comedy that had come before. These guys were like, uh, more into understanding and and poking fun at character people who take themselves too seriously people with extreme beliefs and that's what's kind of separated that and and that kind of idea that humanity has not really changed very much Uh, humanity itself or you know the way people interact and whatnot hasn't changed much so it's funny because it's in contrast with your typical biblical epic. These people are acting and behaving and talking in much the way we act, talk, and behave today. And it's kind of, you know, the contrast between what we expect and what they show us is what causes a lot of the humor. Yes, no one is speaking in Aramaic in this film. <laughs> right. They're speaking in very kind of 
very British, very British humor, and I really appreciate that about those. And they're not that high arch British accents that you would get in the biblical epics. Of course, they're all like working class, you know, accents. But Rob made a point that. And I, I agree, or I'd like to think that uh, what they're showing by acting colloquially is closer to the actual truth than what we get in biblical epics. I mean, reality was pretty much, or I would like to think, or imagine it was more like the way they're depicting it than it was depicted to us in biblical epics. Yeah, I think the critics probably get scrubbed out of the narrative as time goes on. I'm willing to bet that when the Sermon on the Mount happened, there was like a handful of people going, really? Like, really? Like, <laughs> Are you are you kidding me? The meek are inherit the earth. Really, come on! Like like seriously, they can't do anything. They're meek. That's why they're called the meek, you know, right. or something. And then and then like the whole i the the whole idea that there would be criticism and the whole idea that there'd be you know some group at the back who, who can't quite hear them, so they're coming up with their own like what like like what did he say? You know, like I'm like. If if you listen to anyone today, and and I mean, granted, we we live in a media saturated environment, but still, people get it wrong. Where there's some speech or something happens, and then it's open. You know, people have various interpretations of what the hell somebody was saying. Now, imagine that two thousand years ago, when you didn't really have anyone kind of writing it down, and then like what else was going on, sort of on the sides as all of this stuff was happening. Well, even today, a lot of Christians, hardcore Christians say that uh, the Bible is to be read metaphorically. That's just kind of like a concession that you can't take it literally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there are still people who do take it literally, and that's insane. <laughs> which, which then leads us to the idea of can you be blasphemous in a good way, which is the next scene up with the stoning and the idea that you can't even say Jehovah in a nice way without uh, being brought up on blasphemy. Look, I had a lovely supper, and all I said to my wife was that piece of halibut was good enough for Jehovah. Yes, me! He said it again. It took me the longest time to realize that Matthias, the guy who's up for the stoning, is the same guy who later on is helping the people's front of Judea. Yes, the FDJ. I never really kind of connected that until I was uh, reading the screenplay the other day, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, this is the same dude. So they just pretty much go after the Cleese character and leave him alone. (laughs) And I love this whole idea of the women who are the ones forbidden from going to a stoning being the ones pretty much the sole um, people that are involved. The only people in the audience, all these women with their fake beards on. I love it. Well, that's an example of the, uh, you know, forbidden being really attractive. (laughs) There's a whole bunch of stuff in here about commercialism around various things. And one of which is before you get to the stoning, them, a uh, character played by Eric Idle is a merchant trying to sell various types of stones because, of course, you just can't go there and just pick up any old stone. You know, these are this is handcrafted stones for your stoning experience. Extra pointy stones, sir. Nah, they got them up there, lying around on the ground. Oh, not like these, sir. Look at these. Feel the quality of that. That's craftsmanship, sir. <laughs> Once again, that kind of like reflects contemporary society. You would, if there were stonings today, I'm sure the same type of uh, you know commercialism would uh, play a role. You know? If there were stonings today, well, why not? <laughs> 
Well, I'm saying that there are. Yeah, <laughs> there, there are. Today. There's not, what's worse, one of these contemporary electrocutions or a stoning, you know? Right. Yeah, how far we've come in 2,000 years. I mean, go over to Pakistan. I'm sure you'll witness a stoning sooner oh, that's, or later. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I think there was a stoning recently in, was it Saudi Arabia or was it Iran? I can't remember. I remember reading a story about it. But unlike this one where they're just sort of, you know, standing there, I think what they did is they buried them up to their necks and then people throw stones at their heads. That's, That's the way you're supposed to do it, I guess. Yeah. Oh, it's much more Caligula-like then. Uh, Rob, you're in uh, Colorado now. I'm sure there's a lot of stoning going on. Yeah, ever since they legalized the pot, yeah. <laughs> Shadow from the starlight is softer than a lullaby Rocky Mountain Then, as they're um, the the Virgin Mandy and um, Brian are sort of you know palling around, they come across the lepers. I love the uh, Michael Palin character as the ex leper who uh, is not happy that Jesus uh, cured him. Spare a talent for an old ex leper? A talent? That's more than he earns in a month. Off oh, talent then. Now go away. Come on, big nose, let's haggle. What? All right, cut the agri Say you owe me one shekel. I started 2,000. We close about 1,800. No. 75. Go away! Yeah, apparently this is the scene that leaked out when they were filming it and started to get the ball rolling back in the UK and start getting them in trouble with some of the uh, Legion of Decency type people out there. For the life of me, I cannot figure out how anyone could get upset with this movie. I, I'm just, just an aside here. If anybody has strong enough faith, if they have real strong faith and they should should be able to say, bring it on. My faith can withstand anything you throw at it. You know, that's just my opinion. But for the life of me, it just indicates how sensitive and how shaky their faith actually is. Because they've come to, uh, I, I think we talked a little bit about that idea on the uh, Last Temptation of Christ episode, where people are used to a certain aspect or a certain idea of how this figure or this character is presented and therefore whenever something is different or it's taken from another angle which in the case of life of brian i don't really consider it blasphemous because it, jesus is existing at the same time as brian um, right they do not throughout the course of the movie there is not one uh, bit of ridicule aimed at jesus christ it's a different character it's just it's a it holds zealotry and, uh, you know, the, the fan clubs of God, if you will, or, you know, religion, organized religion up to ridicule. But it does not in any way, the movie, I can't think of one reference in the film that actually ridicules Jesus. You got this, the beggar here does complain that, that he wished he wouldn't have been cured of, of leper, rather. The leper complains a little bit, but aside from that, you know. Yeah, he calls him a bloody do-gooder. Yeah, but. bloody do-gooder. Now, come I, on. Like how not, I like how not only is he an ex-leper, but this is probably the best that Michael Palin has ever looked. You know, he's all tan, and it looks like he's oiled up and everything. He just looks like, you know, really fit and everything. Because, of course, if Jesus is going to cure you of leprosy, you're, he's going to go all out, and you're going to become, like, you know, almost this bronze god kind of thing. And it's just like... You know, him all bouncing around. I love his body language when he's in the 
this scene and just kind of hopping around and explaining his whole story and everything. He's so energetic and it's just, you know, totally looking a gift horse in the mouth, just could not be grateful at all for getting his leprosy cured because he doesn't want a real job. He just wants to be a beggar. So how dare Jesus ruin his livelihood? Am I missing something? Is there a specific reason for the hopping, constant hopping around that Michael Palin is doing in that scene? Or is it just a character quirk or what? I think it's a character quirk, but I'm thinking maybe because he's so fit that he just can't really stay in one place. I'm not sure. <laughs> he's defeating his own purpose then, really. Yeah. yeah. He's not even trying to put on like he's still got a gummy leg or something. Right. But anyway, uh, Bloody Do-Gooder, is, if that's the worst you can say about Jesus, you know, that's not bad. So Brian eventually finds himself working at the Coliseum, uh, selling odds and ends and various other services. Uh, Sundry items, sort of like uh, the albatross scene in the old Monty Python TV show. <laughs> albatross! What flavor is it? It's a bird, isn't it? It's a bloody seabird. It's not any bloody flavor. Albatross! You get wafers with it. Of course you don't get bloody wafers with it. Albatross! Kind of reminds me of the uh, the chocolates that uh, I'm trying to remember what company that was, but I remember one of them was Ram's Bladder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he's selling refreshments at the Coliseum when he runs into our friends again from uh, the People's Front of Judea, and um, this is this is the first sort of uh, explanation of factionalism within the various revolutionary left, and I just love how the the pythons sort of send up all the various groups that you know if they all work together they probably could get the job done but they refuse to because one group is not you know hardcore enough or they're you know they're not the holders of the one true faith so therefore uh, they're splitters <laughs> well that that's, reminds me of something that's actually in uh, Adam Curtis documentaries talking about terrorist groups the idea that uh, people within a particular group end up killing off the other people in the terrorist group because they're not pure enough. So they all get paranoid of each other. And, you know, it's about the sensibility of Python that they they recognize that aspect of this type of thing, that it's not about any kind of particular ideology that they all share. In the case of the People's Judean Front, these guys aren't about, I don't know of any kind of ideology that they put forward. They're basically about hating the Romans, and that's it. It's hate, you know, even when you tell them all the good that the Romans have done for them they respond with hate you know can i join your group now piss off i didn't want to sell this stuff it's only a job i hate the romans as much as anybody are you sure oh dead sure i hate the romans already listen if you wanted to join the pfj you'd have to really hate the romans i do oh yeah how much a lot Right, you're in. But I also think that that's true when you look at various social movements or things like that. I mean, there's like, what, like 50 different groups that work on the environment or some sort of, you know, social cause or whatever. It's like, why don't you guys just all work together? And it's like, oh, well, you know, they're not, uh, you know, really fighting for the cause. They, you know, they want to talk about this or that. I mean, I I saw this as a kid because my dad was a member of various, um, you know, non-believer groups, specifically various atheist groups. And I saw how they
they would factionalize among themselves, you know? And it's like, well, don't you all just agree on the same things? No, we don't. It's like, okay. <laughs> Are they like misanthropes over here, nihilists over there? And, you know, how do, how do they break that down? Billy <laughs> doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. Oh, that must be exhausting. Yeah, it's 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 just uh, a thing that keeps rolling through this film, you know, whenever somebody mentions the name of the group and then they're like, oh, I thought we were this group. No, we're that group. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, poor Loretta. <laughs> so as things go on, uh, we get a, a fabulous lesson in Latin for those who would like to tell the Romans to go home. What's this then? Romanes Aeontomus. People call Romanes, they go the house. It, it says Romans go home. No, it doesn't. What's Latin for Roman? Probably one of my favorite scenes, just because of the absurdity of it and that it's totally just this whole idea of miswriting um, graffiti and having someone correct it uh, is definitely. Uh, something that I appreciate. So I was very glad when John Cleese comes up and has to give Graham Chapman a lesson in, in Latin to properly say Romans go home. And I love how they don't go after him until he's completed the job. Yeah, the the two guards who were there watching him all night don't do it again. They walk off and then the new group of Romans come in and they chase them all through the city. Again, we end up with uh, the divisions, the factions, when uh, they both come up with the same idea for how to get the Romans to leave. Yeah, this whole idea of kidnapping Pontius Pilate's wife and cutting bits off and sending them out and giving Pilate five days to dismantle the entire Roman Empire. And this is one of the first places where we have, um, well, actually, it's the second place where we have any kind of significant cut in the film. And even what I saw in the deleted scenes for the film, uh, the scene of Pilate's wife, because we don't really see her in the film at all, the, the final version, but there's a deleted scene of her. And there's even more to that because I've got the book of the script of my, of Life of Brian, and there's a still image of her, and I put her in quotation marks because she's being played by a man, um, pretty much smacking Brian on the top of the head. And she is just bizarre looking in the film. <laughs> it's, it's, I believe it's John Cleese with this bizarre headgear and like really large fake breasts. <laughs> it just looks bizarre in the deleted scenes. I I know that we should not believe IMDb, but IMDb has someone, John Case, playing Pilot's wife. And in the still, it does not look like uh, Cleese at all, but we barely get to see her. But it's definitely a man. Looks like he is uh, almost a head taller than Graham Chapman, which is pretty impressive because Graham is so tall. And yeah, just this like uh, white face makeup with uh, red lipstick on and about to pound Chapman on the head. And it's like, yeah, in the finished version, the, the deleted scene, it's like, what is that thing? <laughs> was just running around like mad and had one of the people's front of Judea like holding on to her neck and you know she's just way too strong way too tall and just carrying them all throughout the uh, the sewers or the the basement of Pilate's palace there it was just such a weird scene and it really works a lot better without that at all with that cut feels very natural to me i agree i i didn't think it's interesting to watch after the fact but it, i it didn't add anything in particular i don't think there was anything particularly hilarious about it and it probably would have worked against the flow of the film it actually works against one of the philosophical elements 
of the the battle between the various factions because in the version that's in the film we get the idea that they both show up they both have the same plan and then they start fighting amongst each other for who's going to do it and what happens in the deleted scene version is they both show up they agree to work together they go in to get the woman she's running around all over the place like beating him up locks herself back into the chamber and then they start fighting with each other so it's more like they're fighting with each other is more about the fact that they didn't complete their task as opposed to again this whole like divisions among the the revolutionaries which is which constantly comes up which like i said philosophically makes more sense right and what's there in the deleted scene just seems like um misguided action scene it doesn't really work as comedy so much in my opinion that's anyhow it's time for the 734 to come on by (laughs) (laughs) what's that the train oh yeah i live by the tracks (laughs) like a hobo (laughs) (laughs) ken's on the wrong side of the tracks yeah It's gone now, I think. So pretty much there's a mass slaughter of all of the people's front of Judea as well as the other faction that shows up. And then Brian gets nicked. And we get to see our first appearance of Pontius Pilate at this point, if memory serves. Yes, yes. This is this is where Brian is brought to Pilate, and um, of course he has a, a speech impediment. And this is probably one of the most quoted scenes, for me anyway, is just this whole exchange of uh, Brian and the chief Roman guard played by John Cleese and then Michael Palin as Pontius Pilate and the way that they are constantly like especially the way that Brian is trying to correct Michael Palin's speech (laughs) you know no Roman yeah (laughs) (laughs) and then we find out that uh this is where he reveals um he had just had it revealed to him and what really kind of drove him into this underground of political uh intrigue was finding out that he is only half jewish that his father was a roman by the name of naudius maximus (laughs) (laughs) well he was a woman (laughs) no a roman a woman no no roman Your father was a woman. Who was he? He was a centurion in the Jerusalem garrisons. Really? What was his name? Nautius Maximus. (laughs) (laughs) About half past five, sir. What? Those are some of my favorite ones where Cleese just answers them. (laughs) And I still wonder, it's like, what is he supposed to be answering? I can't figure it out. It's it's one of the most hilarious scenes in the movie, which is kind of funny in itself because it's basically your traditional comedic setup, you know, just lisping and cracking people up. And, yeah, it's a traditional comedy scene. And it, it's just still so hilarious. And that he doesn't seem to realize that he has this speech impediment. And it's, you know, the guard is really trying to look out for him, especially later on, you know, just trying to be like, no, you really don't have to address the people today. It's really okay. Just trying to keep him out of the public eye because he knows it's pretty embarrassing. But Michael Palin as Pontius has no idea that he has a speech impediment. No idea why people are laughing at him at all. No idea why the name Biggest Dickus is funny either. <laughs> I have a great friend in Rome named Biggest Dickus. He has a wife, you know. <laughs> She's called Incontinentia. Incontinent, your buttocks. Stop! What is all this? I've had enough of this 
bloody rebels sneaking behavior. Silence! Call it I think he's aware because he's he's deliberately trying to get the guards to laugh at, at a certain point in time. It becomes obvious that he's trying to, and he knows that he can. All he has to keep do, all he has to do is keep saying "bickus dickus." Anyone else? <laughs> Want to giggle? <laughs> Not have my friends ridiculed by the common soldiery. <laughs> This is where Brian ends up in the dungeon? Actually, he was just in the dungeon before this. Uh, and then he gets brought up upsta- upstairs because he's quite the jailer's pet. This is the really the one of the few times that, as far as I know, we get to see Terry Gilliam in this film. Just looking completely horrid as one of the jailers. <laughs> He's got like this like huge brow and looks kind of uh, demented, you know. He looks he's totally like a caveman, yeah. I'd heard on one of the commentary tracks that he actually was supposed to have a scar down the middle of his forehead as if his head had been split open at some point. Yeah, he totally does and then it almost looks like he's got a band tying his head back together to keep his skull together. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then the thing that's funny is between um, where they're lining everyone up for the crucifixion, this character shows up again, and it's him and a character played by Eric Idle who stutters, but they're completely normal whenever anyone goes away. Yeah, they're playing the roles for the for the crowd. Right. No, this is uh, after they're done talking about biggest dickus is when Brian makes his valiant escape and ends up with the um, I want to say the Vogons, even though I know they're not Vogons because they don't spout any kind of horrible pe- um, poetry. I don't know that reference. Oh, that is um, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Ah, okay. Yeah, they're just described in the script as being uh, two strange beings, and that's about it. But they do name check Star Wars in the um, in the script here. Uh, an exciting animated Star Wars type f- space flight, climbing and weaving and destroying the enemy craft before eventually being hit and plunging back to Earth. This is the scene that when I was a kid, always blew me away because it's like what the hell just happened we go from this roman adventure <laughs> this this judean adventure as it were to him jumping into the spacecraft and it is just such a great non sequitur and really does nothing other than get him from the tower that he jumped off of to the ground and but there's about what five minutes here of this exciting space <laughs> battle going on yeah with these uh, big-headed creatures who have what look like uh their eyeballs being held by an arm out of the center of their foreheads <laughs> they always kind of reminded me of like joyriding teenagers <laughs> space teenagers <laughs> yes i think it was probably put in there they i think they had the idea that they got to shake things up somehow or other at that point in the story in case kids were nodding off or something i don't know yeah because mom and dad took you to the biblical epic and those things are snoozers man i'm telling you <laughs> they could have used the uh, you know, a scene from outer space and, uh, you know, greatest story ever told. <laughs> Makes sense. I want to say that we're about halfway through the movie, and this is really kind of where we start to get the idea of all the other prophets that are around. We have, uh, actually, I, I, you know, just was saying that Terry Gilliam isn't in the script too much or in the film too much, but he does play the first 
crazy prophet um, with these disembodied hands on his uh, double cross and the, uh, you know, his face is covered in mud and everything. And he just is uh, doing this whole blood and doom kind of uh, prophecy about riding forth on a serpent's back and his eyes shall be red with the blood of living creatures. And the whore of Babylon shall ride forth on a free-headed serpent and throughout the land shall be a great rubbing of pots. <laughs> <laughs> It's one of my favorite mo- favorite scenes in the movie because I just love the idea of an open air supermarket for uh, messiahs. You know, it, you get to pick and choose which one you want, and a lot of times people pick and choose religions that are compatible to them. And it just seems like an appropriate thing to put in this. It seems like there's one stall after another of these guys, and there's like you said the fire crazy brimstone Terry Gilliam one, and then there's the Michael Palin, and there, <laughs> and that will be. A- a great time when people have forgotten things um, and there shall be a great confusion as to where things really are and nobody will really know where lieth those little things with, with the sort of raffia work base that has an attachment at this time a friend shall lose his friend's hammer and the young shall not know where lieth the things possessed by their fathers that their fathers put there only just the night before, about eight o'clock. Just like the most like quiet and calm, like see now him I would follow. <laughs> <laughs> He seems like he's easy enough to get along with. Yeah. He won't forget. He'll forget the hammer that uh, he loaned him just the, just the day before. The things possessed by their fathers that their fathers put there just the night before. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a religion of everyday banal type stuff going on, and that's important. Exactly. So this is about the time when Brian ends up back at the, uh, I guess, the clubhouse of his good friends in the People's Front of Judea, and. Um, they're hatching their their plans, and they're, as you said, sitting around grousing about the Romans and all the things the Romans uh, haven't done for them. Well, maybe they have done for them, but whatever. And uh, they sh- he shows up there, which then leads, of course, uh, the the Roman legions to their uh, their hideout. Yeah, and this whole thing with the centurion again, uh, John Cleese and Matthias, and their whole exchange about. You know, have you ever seen a crucifixion? And Matthias was just so like, eh, whatever. I've seen worse. (laughs) What you mean could be worse? No, it could be stabbed. Stabbed? Takes a second. Crucifixion lasts hours. It's a slow, horrible death. Well, at least it gets you out in the open air. You're weird. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the few moments in the film. I mean, luckily, since we lost the pilot's wife scene, which was kind of like the most slapsticky kind of scene, this is almost up there with slapstick, but it's just this whole idea of all these Roman soldiers going into Matthias's tiny little place, just soldier after soldier after soldier, where we know the entire remaining members of the people's front of Judea are hiding, but they can't find anything. Uh, all they can find is a spoon <laughs> and he keeps the spoon, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on, bloody Romans. <laughs> and this is where Brian goes out. He's hiding on the, um, the very rickety balcony, and eventually the balcony falls and he knocks over the boring prophet that you're just talking about and ends up taking his place and to kind of uh, cover himself a little bit, he starts to spout his own philosophy to a very small throng of listeners. 
Yeah, but they like him. Kind of. They're always questioning exactly everything that he says. You know, there's two servants. Well, what are their names? <laughs> Consider the lilies. Uh, well, the birds, then. What birds? Any birds. Why? Well, have they got jobs? Who? The birds. Have the birds got jobs? What's the matter with him? Says the birds are scrounging. Oh, look, the point is, the birds, they do all right, don't they? Well, good luck to them. Yeah, they're very pretty. Okay, and you're much more important than they are, right? So what are you worrying about? They are, see? I'm worrying about what you've got against birds. They have no grasp of metaphor whatsoever. <laughs> and then uh, he has to run off because, uh, you know, he's still being chased by the Roman legions, which is led by, of course, uh, John Cleese. This is the whole uh, uh, shoe versus gourd thing because he picks up a gourd and then he's like, all right, well, you know, here you can have it. And then that becomes a holy relic. And then the fact that he loses his sandal, that also becomes a holy relic. And then the idea of, okay, well, which do you follow? How do you follow? Do you hold up your shoe? Do you remove your shoe? Uh, Do you follow the gourd? Yeah, this is the moment for me, which just really kind of encapsulates all of modern religion for me. This is the place where, to me, the satire becomes the most pointed and what I really kind of appreciate about this film overall. This is this is the thing, like, especially when John Cleese says, like, Hail Messiah! I'm not the Messiah! I say you are Lord, and I should know I followed a few! I agree 100%. For me, this is a total distillation of how factions happen, and about how it's about power and leadership and uh they do it so brilliantly in you know two or three minutes it's wonderful oh yeah this is almost like the entire history of the of the christian church distilled down to three minutes yeah yeah. we've got the miracles and it's like you know the bushes were already there oh but it's a miracle we were hungry and you fed us it was like oh (laughs) but those bushes were there and then how he ends up uh stepping out poor poor terry jones is in this scene as this old hermit who's been there for 18 years without saying a word and brian steps on his foot hurts him and he starts speaking again and then when he says you know i haven't spoken for 18 years they're like a miracle a miracle yeah and then <laughs> and then he gets pissed off and tries to get people away from his bushes because that's what he's been eating right and they end up don't they end up killing him no they they call him a heretic and they they start <laughs> going after him and uh, i don't think they kill him but they're just like look he does he's he's against our lord get him and all this so oppress oppress him this whole thing of like you know i'm i'm not the messiah you know i say you are lord and i should know i've followed a few you know and they're like you know he, if he's not the messiah he's going to deny it so then he says okay i am the messiah and they're like oh of course you're the messiah you <laughs> see he admits it <laughs> <laughs> now back off <laughs> right it's, a, it, it's zealotry at, at its core you know it, it's the uh whole idea that pe- these people want to believe something so much that reality doesn't really matter to them it's what they want to believe and it that's so brilliantly done here so he heads home and then the next morning after he's uh he wakes up and goes to the shutters. And Judith have had a uh, a great rubbing of parts. Yes, him and, <laughs> him and sister Judith from uh, the PFJ uh, get together, and um, he goes and opens the shutters, and there's the multitude out there. 
he didn't quite get rid of them as he thought he did. This might have been one of my first cases of both male and female full frontal nudity when I was a kid. And I must say, I was pretty impressed. Was that the real scandal for you, Mike? I don't know if I was scandalized, but I was definitely very interested in what the hell was going on between Judith's legs. It's like, she's got so much hair there. What is going on? You know, they didn't shave much in the 70s, probably didn't shave much in the aughts. 33 AD, not a lot of shaving going on. <laughs> no. So we get some uh, great lines from uh, Terry Jones as the Virgin Mandy here, uh, speaking to the masses and sort of the, uh, which you have already said. Now you listen here. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Now go away. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Eric Idle asking her if she's a virgin. <laughs> if it's not too personal, are you a virgin? What? Not too personal. This is when Brian comes out and, and addresses the multitudes. Mandy gives him one minute to speak to the to the throng. And he comes out and tries to basically instill them with a message of individuality. You know, you are all individuals. You're all different. And they're all chanting after him completely with one voice. I've got one or two things to say. Look, you've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourself. You're all individuals. Yes, we're all individuals. You're all different. Yes, we're all different. I'm not. You all got to work it out for yourself. Yes, we've got to work it out. I'm trying to remember what movie we just talked about recently, Rob, where this was kind of the whole idea of, you know, you don't have to listen to what other people tell you, just work things out on your own. And that's totally Brian's message. But the multitudes don't want to hear that. They want to hear the word. They want to hear the good news and uh, have it held down, you know, handed down to them instead of kind of going off on their own and figuring things out like real people should. And again, this is sort of that perversion of the biblical epic, like, you know, Moses and bringing down the Ten Commandments and informing the masses. Oh, yes, you know, thank you. And things like that. And it's sort of like if the guy who was supposed to, quote, give the message in the film got off script a little bit. And then then the people who were there to accept the message were still trying to accept it anyway. And this is where we have, right around this point, you know, Brian has become this uh – very big deal for the People's Front of Judea, and they are um, trying to help him out a little bit by, you know, kind of uh, sorting out all the people that want to see Brian. So it's, you know, we've got the, can the people, you know, who are being possessed by devils, please stay over here. Can, you know, the, if you are looking for a miracle, go over there, this kind of stuff. And this is another scene that gets cut right around here uh, where Brian goes out and he meets Otto, who we eventually I guess find out that he's um, member of the Judean People's Front, uh, according to the end of the film. And Otto, a very controversial character, and I can completely see why, but I think this is uh, some of the most pointed satire in here, and I almost wish that they had left a little bit of Otto in there, because he is this 
Um, I mean, 1979, you know, Zionism and, um, you know, Jewish radicalism is really kind of a hot button type of thing. I remember Vanessa Redgrave getting booed at the Oscars for some of her statements and stuff. <laughs> and Otto is right there with this whole message of racial purity and that he wants to have a homeland that is free from all of these non-Jews. I grow so impatient, you know, to see the leader that has been promised our people for centuries. The leader who will save Israel by ridding it of the scum of non-Jewish people, making it pure. No foreigners, no riffraff, no gypsies. Shotto! What, the leader? Hey, leader! No, no, it's dangerous. Danger? Otto's got this uh, Star of David on his helmet, and his outfit, his outfit and his men's outfits, they almost look like these kind of uh, samurai outfits kind of thing, like the the old armor that the samurai would wear. But his Star of David has uh, hooks coming off of each side, so it kind of mixes this swastika with the Star of David. So I would think that this part, had they left it in, would probably be one of the more controversial ones, but... I don't know, it really kind of holds a special place in my heart. I think as a scene on its own, it's interesting, but I can understand why they took it out. Because when you watch the deleted scenes on the Criterion Edition, and you realize where it comes, and even, I think it's Eric Idle says it on the commentary, he goes, bring in this new character, it's like, who is this, why are they here now? And it it's a little confusing at that point. Although, the ideas of what they're trying to say about Zionism and how... Zionism can be just as bad as National Socialism uh, is quite interesting. I'm not easily shocked, but that came closest when I saw the deleted footage. That came closest to making me go, whoa, like that could have been something that I could see why some people could get really upset about that. But uh, personally, I, I, I agree that, that it is good satire, it's good social commentary, and uh, is very pointed political uh, commentary, and, but I don't. I can see how the film could work with it or without it. So yeah, I think pacing wise, it probably was a good call to take this out, and especially later on. Um, there's another uh, section of them that comes about, and then for folks who don't know necessarily what we're talking about, who have never seen the deleted scenes, you still get to see the people's front or the Judean people's front Suicide being led. Squad. Yes, being led by uh, Eric Idle as Otto here. You see them at the very end. They visit... Um, I guess we should get into spoilers a little bit. Spoiler! We They visit Brian's crucifixion and allegedly commit suicide but i never necessarily got this joke that later on they're tapping their feet while they're dead and in this earlier scene when they quote-unquote commit suicide they fake it they don't commit suicide so i never got that joke that they when they commit suicide they're at brian's feet that they probably really didn't kill themselves yeah it's kind of this uh odd little surreal add-on actually in the in the final film as we know know it because they kind of show up out of nowhere they commit suicide by opening this little door in their chest and stabbing themselves with the swords i really like i really like the costume design on these guys oh yeah it was almost maybe they could have put the other scene in just for the costume design because you got a better look at the helmets in that 
And then they all just fall over, and then Brian goes, You silly sods. You know, and that's all he <laughs> says to them. And, and then, of course, when Always Look on the Bright Side of Life kicks up, they start tapping their toes. Well, I don't know if you, if you caught it, but there's a shot of Graham Chapman as Brian from an angle in which he has this really great smile on his face. He's looking so hopeful that they were going to save him. And it's it's a really good piece of acting. Yeah, I love how they, they described uh, Graham Chapman as the best actor in in Python because he wasn't acting that he seemed to be very natural with his reactions and everything. And I, I do appreciate that he is probably one of the, their best actors that he can handle being the lead in, um, Holy Grail and being in the lead of this with really, you know, he doesn't seem to be batting an eye. And plus, I think that he also plays into the stereotypical Jesus of, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed um, <laughs> Jew. <laughs> and he does have a very big nose. Your nose is going to be three foot wide across your face by the time I finish with you. <laughs> so uh, we haven't quite got to the crucifixion scene yet, but he eventually gets... Uh, captured again yep gets nicked again after well there is one really good part where judith is talking to brian about you know how um what what did she say uh you know we don't need leaders Uh, you know reg has been dominating us for so long and he's like well yeah okay great and it's like you know it's our revolution we can do it together all we need we're all behind you brian the revolution's in your hands now and it's like no 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 (laughs) you can't go from reg being the leader to me being the leader you know it's like you got got to do it yourselves you know you're hitting us with that message again and just nobody gets it especially you know judith doesn't get it and she's the one who's really kind of closest to him in this and it's like you know just give up all hope but yeah that's when uh he gets nicked again and sent sent in front of pilot and um a special appearance by biggest dickus <laughs> who is uh, Graham Chapman? Yes. Who also has a speech impediment. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but different words. So, <laughs> again, this whole idea of John Cleese as the centurion really trying to kind of protect Pilate. So he, at one point, starts listing off all of these words and names that begin with syllables that Pilate would not have trouble with. And that's when <laughs> Biggest Dickus gets up there and starts reading the same list, which he has trouble with every single word with, <laughs> with his lisp. <laughs> Let me speak to them. Oh, no. uh, good idea, Biggest. Citizen, we have a Samson of Sadducees Strangler. Silas the Assyrian assassin, several seditious cries Again, just brilliant kind of stuff. So they uh, decide that in order to uh, to show a little bit of mercy over the Passover holiday, uh, Pilate's going to release one person from being crucified. And uh, people keep coming up with names that they know that Pilate, who's speaking to the masses, will get wrong so they can all have a laugh. In this scene, just watching them laughing and just it it just it's like a feedback loop it just gets funnier and funnier when i watch this scene even you know so many years later i was just howling with laughter again yesterday while i was watching it just to see their the crowd's reaction and them just baiting pilot over and over again <laughs> you know like what's the what crimes is he guilty of oh he's a robber and a rapist and then the one woman's like and a pickpocket and they all like slam her down <laughs> <laughs> and we 
we're kind of cross-cutting between this uh, whole drama because we know that Brian could get released if uh, somebody actually says his name. And we're cross-cutting between that and Reg and the rest of the People's Friend of Judea who have had enough of talking and they're going to take some action. And basically all of their actions are just trying to um, get different motions on the table, getting them seconded. <laughs> making a resolution because <laughs> they're big about Robert's Rules of Order, I guess, in 33 AD Judea. <laughs> Robert's Rules of Order. There you go. Silence! What is all this insolence? You will find yourself in gladiator school very quickly with rotten behavior like that. So eventually, Brian's name gets called up, and they said, "Yes, we do have a Brian." This is as Brian's heading to uh, to be crucified, and I love the, um, the the systematic way in which the crucifixions are handled. Yes, yeah, we've got uh, Eric Idle down below, or no, sorry, Michael Palin down below, you know, handing out the crosses. You know, crucifixion. Yes, good. Out of the door, line on the left, one cross each. Next next <laughs> the most pleasant roman guard ever and then you have like of course the, the whole scene of the passion in uh biblical film and especially when we talk about uh, which you had brought up earlier this isn't an aramaic um <laughs> the passion of the christ the whole uh, via de la rosa you know the whole scourging on the way to uh, golgotha and the, the nailing in and all that stuff of course is always supposed to be the most somber and bloody and you know brutal section of of any uh story of the end of christ but here it's handled with such uh, reverence because it isn't Christ, it's Brian, and he's got a bunch of jokesters around him who um, are, are, you know, like the guy who's been crucified several times before and his brother comes and gets him down after a day or so. And you got the guy in the jail cell, you know, still yelling at him, jailer's pet, <laughs> as he's taking the cross out. And the, the, my favorite one, though, is the good Samaritan who comes up and helps the one guy with his cross, and the guy just takes off. And the, and the good Samaritan's just like, yeah, no, this isn't my cross. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> right. So eventually um, they they get them all in place and they get them up on the crosses. And then they start complaining about, you know, where they are in the standings here. Like, uh, you know, I heard this was a Jewish section. I'm not Jewish. I'm a Samaritan. A Samaritan? This is supposed to be a Jewish section. It doesn't matter. You're all going to die in a day or two. I love that guy. I love that that guy... It's basically this mirror of the opening scene. You know, we have almost everybody that we saw in that uh, opening Sermon on the Mount section back again now. You know, the the guy who's you know uh, we've got Mister Big Nose and we've got this guy and um, his wife, of course, and we've got even their servant, this little black kid who's got this. He was shading the the one guy with an umbrella at the beginning, and he's still shading this guy. He just has a super long umbrella. <laughs> stick to, to hold over this guy's head while he's on the cross yeah and so it's a nice bookend for the film to have all of these people back together again uh right before they're or right as they're being crucified and then the centurion shows up because they're going to release brian and this is the scene that i didn't get until years later because i hadn't seen spartacus (laughs) (laughs) and after i saw i remember watching spartacus the first time and i just started cracking up slaves you were 
and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm 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 Spartacus. And I was watching with someone. They're like, "Why are you laughing? That's not funny." And I'm like, "Life of Brian. Never mind." Where is Brian Nazareth? Bastard! I have an order for his release. You stupid bastard! Uh, I'm Brian of Nazareth. What? Yeah, I'm Brian of Nazareth. Take him down. I'm Brian of Nazareth. I'm Brian. I'm Brian. I'm Brian. I'm Brian. I'm Brian, and so's my wife. And then, of course, the jokester played by Eric Idle is the guy who gets released. Yeah, because yeah. Brian is so mad at Reg and just laying into him about their stupid resolution about, you know, you know, way to go, Brian. Thanks for being our <laughs> martyr and everything <laughs> that he actually misses the centurion who's uh, who comes and says, you know, I'm here to free Brian. And then, you know, Mr. Cheeky says, yep, you know, I'm Brian. And then as they're taking him down, he's like, no, really, I'm not. I'm not. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a collection of everything that he wouldn't want to have happen at that moment happening. Yeah, his mother comes back to bitch at him. <laughs> you know, uh, these people who he thinks are saving him are, are end up committing suicide, and you know he becomes a martyr when he would have rather gotten taken off the cross. It's you know what else could go wrong? This is a perfect day for Brian. Well, it plays on all of the other stuff that we've seen in the biblical films, or that we know from the, the you know passion story or whatever where you know the virgin comes and there's the whole her at the bottom of the cross kind of thing and there's this like all these Mary Magdalene and yeah. got Longinus and the apostles are coming <laughs> by and yeah Brian's apostles are the PFJ who are just like you know great job and they leave <laughs> <laughs> which which I remember years ago, there was a, a bit that Sam Kinison had where he was ch- talking about seeing these biblical epics as a kid. Yeah, I read it, folks. I read that book. He's on the cross. There's 30, 40 Christians standing around going, it's a shame that he has to die. And Jesus is going, well, maybe I wouldn't have to. Somebody get a ladder and a pair of pliers. A ladder, a pair of pliers, could have been a different book, folks. <laughs> Going back to what you were just saying, Rob, about the whole passion of the Christ thing, you know, the whole nailing of the hands through the cross and everything was just so bloody and gory and just, you know, this whole torture porn kind of aesthetic. And on here, they just, you know, wrap their arms up onto the crosses and it's like, okay, you're good. Yeah, they're, just, they're, they're basically just tied on more than anything. Yeah. yeah. Might actually be a little bit more gruesome of a death because they'll probably, you know, live a little bit longer that, since they don't have nails pounded through their extremities. But, you know, it's it's definitely makes for a much happier ending. Yeah, I don't think that uh, the Pythons at that point oh, wanted to shock people by nailing, you know, hands into the crosses. I, no. I, I, 
I think that would distract from the comedy. I don't think there's anything about that that would necessarily be funny, though I'm sure that they could have come up with something. Now, had this been like meaning of life, they would have gone for the gross out humor. That's true. That's true. That's true. There's plenty of that in there. (laughs) Four years prior, they were okay with just tying them up onto the crosses. Which then leads us to the uh, final song and dance number, which... um it's not really a From dance number. So Mr. Frisbee the Third is what Eric Idle is <laughs> credited as in the screenplay. Just <laughs> FYI, no idea why. It's kind of like the same reason why he's credited as Bob Hoskins in an earlier scene. I'm like, what? Why Bob Hoskins <laughs> of all people? <laughs> but yes, it's Mr. Frisbee the Third, a character that we really haven't seen in the film at all, who's just over Brian Shoulder and gives him some great words of advice to take us out of the film. Cheer up, Brian. You know what they say? Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, don't grumble. Give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best. Always look on the bright side of life. And I have to say, this bit is the one that got my mom in stitches. Like, she still talks about this film all these years later and just talks about this song, loves this song, sings this song. And, yeah, she just uh, fell in love with Monty Python. She really can't stand Flying Circus because she can't understand what they're saying because of their accents. But somehow she managed to make it through Life of Brian and really loves Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. And it's a song that not only is so iconic in this film, I mean, it's just so perfect and so ridiculous, but it's gone on to become sort of a um, a, a thing in pop culture, especially over in the UK. Like, I know that fans at football games will sing it together at certain points during games. <laughs> soldiers would sing this during like the gulf war and stuff like that um (laughs) like this it's just so like this song has kind of taken on a life of its own always look on the bright side of life yeah and then they managed somehow i'm trying to remember it's been a while since i've seen spam a lot but they managed to work this one into spam a lot even though that is primarily based on holy grail but of course they uh managed to get get it into inside of that a good song i just yeah you know it's really well written and it's a great ending for the movie i think because at that point it's there's a limited number of ways you can go with the film you know if you're going to leave with a message you may as well make it that message this is the only song i know that manages to rhyme the words gristle whistle and thistle (laughs) (laughs) i'd have to say this is probably in my top five of monty python songs like this one's probably in the top three and then i put the galaxy song for meaning of life in there because that one's always really good you know i've only seen meaning of life once of all of their films i've only seen that once i've seen probably and now for something completely different probably 50 times but meaning of life i don't know what it is about that one i just never went back to it I've even seen Jabberwocky more than I've seen Meaning of Life. Wow. Yeah. Take that. See, and I think you would like Meaning of Life because it plays with film convention and kind of, you know, messes with the audience at times. I think it's the Mr. The guy who explodes. Oh, yeah. Mr. Crusoe. Yeah. Yeah, I think something about that. And then also, there was a movie show on when I was a kid that, I mean, this uh, life... 
Uh, Meaning of Life came out in 83, so I was about, what, 11 when this came out? And there was a movie show on Nickelodeon where they would show scenes from the making of Meaning of Life over and over and over again. Or, like, they showed that particular movie show over and over and over again, so I kind of got sick of it a little bit so like the the scene with the mosquitoes in africa and the how they did the fish heads them in the fish tank and then mr creosote and everything it was just like yeah i'm kind of tired of this film oh and and death coming to the cocktail party (laughs) (laughs) so uh beyond the deleted scenes that we talked about for life of brian there's one that we didn't discuss and this one is actually the opening of the film which is sort of this uh, four and a half minutes of sheep herders sitting on a <laughs> hill. The star or the sign or whatever happens behind them, and then these two other guys show up, and they start to try and talk to them. But one of them threw a rock at the other guy and busted his nose, so he runs off, and they don't get the message that the Messiah has come or the birth of Jesus has happened. I love sheep. So do I. Terrific animals. Terrific. No trouble? No, no trouble. Except at shearing. They can play up a bit then, can't they? Oh, yeah. But I like that sort of little burst of frenzy they have then, you know. I like it when they get a little bit angry. Shows they're human. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying I dislike them at shearing, you know. But they can be a bit of a handful, can't they? I am really glad that they cut this scene. The only thing that I found really funny in the scene is one of the last lines is, Is it AD yet? it kind of felt like the whole scene was written for that one particular line i'm really glad that the movie didn't start that way either but i'm glad i had the chance to see it in the you know uh as a supplement on the criterion edition i i just think there's something so sweet about these shepherds talking about sheep you know it's their livelihood it's their thing you know so loving of their sheep (laughs) really reminds me of the skit that they did about uh over aviation and uh, Harold being the very clever sheep who's trying to teach the other sheep how to fly and they don't so much fly as they plummet <laughs> I, I say uh, there's there's all sheep on me any why are they up in the trees <laughs> a fair question and one that in recent weeks has been much on my mind is my considered opinion that they're nested. Nested? <laughs> like birds. Ah, exactly. Birds is the key to the old problem. Anyone remember that one? No, I don't no? remember. I, uh, okay. I can't remember that one. Vaguely. They even go into the commercial um, commercial benefits of ovine aviation, which is an amazing scene all done in fake French. Ah, uh, I don't remember it. I will have to dig it up for you guys. So you guys have both seen the Criterion version of this. I've only seen the Immaculate edition of this, so I'm not sure what the differences necessarily are. I'm imagining they're pretty much the same. On your guys's, do they have um, multiple Portuguese subtitles for your film? In the uh, supplements, there is something about subtitles. Then it says Portuguese subtitles. I did not, not watch the... But it's on the supplement disc. You can't watch the subtitles with the movie. You can only watch the subtitles with the supplements. And they had the subtitles for the deleted scenes in Portuguese, but not for the the, main movie. On the Immaculate Edition, they have 
one set of English subtitles, and then they have three sets of Portuguese subtitles. <laughs> and it's one of those great Python type things where it's like you go to the subtitles section and they have like regular Portuguese subtitles and then like the special Portuguese subtitles <laughs> and they're all written in Portuguese. So I have no idea what their, the differences are. And then I went through and I watched several sections with the, with the subtitles on with the Portuguese subtitles. And I was flipping from, you know, track two to three to four and they're all exactly the same. But I, I was just like, is this going to be some weird joke? You know, it was kind of like the Norwegian subtitles on the beginning of, of Holy Grail. Yeah, that's what I was expecting it to be like fake Portuguese, you know, like the I, yeah. I didn't notice whether or not you had a subtitle option for the regular for the feature. Uh, I didn't check. So but I did notice specifically on the uh, menu page of the supplement disc. It said something about subtitles. And I noticed this thing about Portuguese subtitles so i thought i'd check it out and uh it's just in portuguese the subtitles are in portuguese and i was watched a few minutes said, there's nothing here except portuguese <laughs> subtitles yeah <laughs> i must have the really old criterion version because i just have a one disc edition if you have a multiple disc uh, over there i got it uh, it's a two disc edition yeah the immaculate is two discs as well it's movie plus commentaries on the first disc supplemental has the what is it the life of brian which is very similar to The Secret Life of Brian, or The Story of Brian, sorry, which is very similar to The Secret Life of Brian. And then the script read-through. Do you, right. Does yours yes. have that? Yep. Yes. And then some radio spots, and um, then the deleted scenes. I like the uh, script read-through. I mean, they, they added whatever kind of Foley work they could while reading it. And, uh, you know... It was enjoyable to listen to. It showed that the very uh, when they first did the script read through, it really wasn't all that far removed from what the movie eventually would be. So they were pretty faithful to the script. Now this script seems like it was really tight. Like, but I've read a little bit about the or saw a little bit about the writing of it and everything, and the way that they um, described how the the script came about. It sounded um, like they were really into the idea of polishing that as much as they possibly could. So there was, as far as I know, no ad-libbing, really. Yeah, but it's it's fun to listen to on its own. If you you know didn't want to watch the movie again, or you just something to fall asleep to or something, uh, listen to uh, the script read-through. It's, it's entertaining. I, of the extras, I really love the um, various radio spots, usually featuring members of their family. Yes, alleged members of the family, I would think. Yeah. Especially uh, John Cleese's mother, who's in the old folks' home. I thought that one was hilarious. And Michael Palin's dentist, I believe. Hello, my name is Muriel Cleese, and I live in a very nice elderly people's home in Western Supermare. My son John is in the new Monty Python film, Life of Brown. Do hope you'll go and see it, because he's on a percentage, and he said if it doesn't do well, he won't be able to keep me on in the home any longer. So see the life of Brian now because I'm 102 years old and if I have to leave here, it'll kill me. Hello, I'm Michael Palin's dentist. People at the British Dental Association often ask me, what's it like looking in a funny man's mouth? The answer in Michael's case is that behind the smile you see on your screens lurks a serious periodontal condition. The treatment requires skill, patience and above all money. 
This is why I am urging you to go and see Michael Palin in Monty Python's Life of Brian and help me get Michael's teeth back where they belong, in his mouth, not in my basin. If you would like to save Michael Palin's teeth, please go and see Monty Python's Life of Brian, exclusive presentation at the Plaza from Thursday, November the 8th, Certificate AA. Thank you. Those are pretty pretty fun. Okay, we're going to take a break and play an interview with director Roger Christian, who worked on Monty Python's Life of Brian. How did you get involved with the project? I had met the Pythons before. They'd wanted me to do one of the other films, and I was busy. I couldn't do it. And then um, Life of Brian came up, and because I'd been to Tunisia on Star Wars, and we'd filmed all over the place, they um, asked me if I could then do Life of Brian for them, based on um, kind of all those various things tied together, and I was free. So... uh, I um, I agreed, and at that stage, then they asked me to be the designer. Terry Gilliam was the co-director with Terry Jones, so they asked me if I could be the production designer, and we went. Terry Jones, Terry Gilliam, myself, and I think John Goldstone went off to Rome to look at props and costumes, and, and Charles Noe, the costume designer, came with us. And we went to Tunisia, had a look at, because um, we knew in Sousse, uh, near Sousse, in Monastir, there was, Seferelli had built these huge sets for Jesus of Nazareth, the TV series, with um, Powell in the lead. It was a huge TV series. So they built these massive sets. They built a Roman Forum and other places there, and they'd left them. So they'd say it was cheaper for them to leave them up than to take them down. So we got permission to use them. And then I took them out to Matmata, where we filmed Luke's homestead, the underground in the caves. Gideon was particularly interested in that. And those round um, holes in the ground, they're huge. They're thousands of years old, and it was a pretty dramatic landscape. So we chose that for the crucifixion scenes. And then we went back through Arles to look at the uh, bullring, uh, the old Roman forum, sorry, which was an amphitheater, and it was a pretty complete one. So we looked at that in case we had to go there and went back. And, the, and Gilliam and I were wandering around Rome looking at... We Kind of the, the inspiration for Life of Brown was Piranesi, and Piranesi kind of excelled his drawings of ancient Rome were huge-scale buildings and statues set against normal scale of people, so they were huge. So we were going around Rome looking at and finding like these kind of elements, huge-scale buildings and taking photographs and making notes. That statue, I don't know if you remember, there's a massive statue that wheeling around on wheels. Yeah, I wondered about that. That was something that we just, Gilliam and I decided, you know, Pyrenees, all had these things. And I mean, they looked at us as if we were mad. And we said, we've got to build this. We did. We got it carved out of polystyrene. It was so huge, but that was done for real. Um, we could afford one, and we moved it around and used it all over the place. But we persevered and got it done. We just thought, let's do it. And it must have been, what, 20-something feet high. That was Pyrenees-inspired. And it, it, it's that whole thing of Rome, those differences in scale. So Gilliam and I were always trying to do that wherever we could. 
Tim Hampton came on board as the actual line producer, so we worked pretty closely with him. And then we had got a young um, assistant art director, John Beard, I'd used on the final remake of Bergest. We had him, so John came on board. I just had one assistant with me. He was doing drawings for us, set drawings and stuff, so Gilly and I were getting everything worked up. Um, I organized my car to go to my parents because we were about to go to Tunisia and I rented the flat out to a friend and we got ready to go and then I was summoned to John Goldstone's office to be told that Lord Delphond had read the script and cancelled it on the spot, said it was blasphemous and there's no way he could fund this. I remember it clearly because three hours later Ridley Scott called me and said, get my fucking ass down to Shepparton. He needed me down there to take over the interior look of Alien because of, of what I'd done on Star Wars and how I created it. So I went back onto Alien and right at the end of the shoot on Alien, they said George Harrison had come in and funded the entire film, so we were on again. That's pretty fortunate that you were able to go from one gig to yeah. the other and then back again. <laughs> I know, it was really good timing. It was just non-stop. I had no breaks at all then, which was fine by me. And then um, we went out to Tunisia. I remember Jonathan Benson, the first assistant, came on board, and um, there was a lot of tension between Terry Gilliam and Terry Jones, a lot over how to shoot it. We we had a recce. There was kind of fights between the two of them over locations, all sorts of things. And when we got back, Tim Hampton called me and John Goldstone into London and said, we've got a huge problem here. Terry Jones has refused to allow Terry Gilliam to have a, any form of director credit. Either he directs it or not at all. So... We kind of compromised, and I said, look, we're, you know, because I realized there was a huge problem, so we called Terry Gilliam, the production designer, and I became the art director. But I, co I actually co-designed it with Gilliam, in effect. What kind of stuff is an art director responsible for? Like, what kind of things were your day-to-day -day responsibilities as you're kind of planning this and going through it? Everything visual, you know, we, we had $4 million was more than the Pythons had ever had on a movie, but it was still to do an epic <laughs> Roman feature film was very small. So I had to be really clever and use because I'd done a lot by now of sets and how to do particularly, you know, Star Wars was under budgeted. So was Alien. I mean, all these films, I'd learned how to do things within low budgets, but created a huge effect. So everything that was built, we had to decide, you know, complicated things that one had to use one's experience on were like the wall of graffiti. So, and, and one of the basic things you do is try to anchor the film into one place or two so that you're not spending money traveling and wasting time because that eats up your budget. So having found Monastir, this huge Roman foreign set we could adapt, and we did. That was an interior set. It was huge. That became the big foreign set there. Right next to it was a, an amazing ancient fort in Monastir that had courtyards and different rooms and different aspects, all sorts of things around it. It was a huge building. So we designated one wall. You can't go painting a wall, obviously. It's an ancient monument. So we had to work out exactly how much we could afford to construct but the characters in front of it could be doing the painting. So we did a false wall in front of it. Gilliam and I had to work out what angle to shoot it at, when the sun was right, everything, because there was no CGI in those days. We had to work out how to 
they had to paint, matte paint, in the rest of the graffiti wall. So it's that kind of thing. And then everything from every prop, every detail, all of everything comes under our jurisdiction. So we went down there, we took John Beard down there, had a production buyer down there come down. We got a couple of locals to help art directing. Um, and we basically, day after day, were churning out drawings for the sets. And within the fort in Monastir, we could find walkways, you know, and then we found Brian's apartment. And then we had to make a door that worked. So we had to build that into the wall. The most tricky thing was the end, the crosses, which was a pretty daunting one for me because I knew the Pythons, they were pretty big stars at that time and they grumbled a lot and I thought, oh God, I've got to get them up on these crosses. They could be so um, uncomfortable. <laughs> wouldn't be able to last long. So I had to devise a whole way to get them up and quick releases to get them off again. Um, which we did. And we had to, you know, these things were huge. We had to find a way to bury them into the ground so they wouldn't rot. There were safety conditions to be met with, all this stuff. And we were in Tunisia. So that was the most difficult. And then we also went into Carthage because um, they had Roman ruins there. And being at the time, it was lucky that there wasn't so many restrictions. They allowed us to shoot. They gave us permits to shoot actually in the Roman bars. So we, we just did a few little bits of building, but we were able to shoot in there and shoot various scenes there. So it was a matter of coordinating, coordinating, you know, the prop men, the construction crews of what we construct at which time and then you work very closely with the line producer in the first AD on scheduling because we're building while they're shooting and then we're pulling down while they're shooting something else and that interlocks everything so it's a full on seven or eight months while you're doing it without a break. What was it like shooting in Tunisia at the time? What was the atmosphere in the country like? Then it was very easy. Um, the most difficult was um, sanitary. Everyone got what we called Bourguiba's Revenge, which was, you know, dysentery, basically diarrhea and all this stuff. And everybody got it every so often. You just couldn't avoid it. But uh, there weren't at those times the refrigeration generally everywhere, so markets were pretty open. So that was not easy. But the fortunate thing of shooting a monastery in Seuss was a big holiday centre package to us, and they had um, a Club Mediterranean there. So we were in pretty nice hotels right on the beaches all the way along. So that side of it was pretty good. And then we just drive the 30, 40 minutes to monastery every day. Uh, the hotels there weren't good enough to stay in. Locals stayed there, the local builders and stuff, to, to save time. But um, the hotels were pretty good, actually. I, that was okay. We had a local Tunisian kind of mafia you have who are in charge at the time, and they fix everything for you. And they really wanted work into Tunisia, so they made life easier for us. They would fix most things that we needed. They'd get fixed. It was an early days. They'd seen Star Wars came in and realized what a good thing it was and how much heat it was generating for Tunisia. So they were very keen on another film coming in. Of, of all the places that have that kind of landscape, why necessarily Tunisia? Was it, were they pushing for this kind of like given the tax breaks? Was it cheaper to shoot there? 
No, it, it, it's the two options where you can easily get in and out. Like there's a ferry from um, from uh, it goes in from where is it from uh, from Italy directly in. Um, and Morocco, and we'd had this on Star Wars. We, we'd wrecked Morocco. Morocco was very unstable at the time. There was, especially down south, there was a lot of disputing over the Sahara and things. So. It was politically unstable, even though it had much more ancient world quality to it, still much more intact. Um, but Tunisia, because there was a direct connection to Italy, very easily to get in, they filmed a lot of Italian uh, biblical stuff there. That's why Zeffirelli went there. So there was a kind of quite pretty good group of established local film crews um, and because it was a holiday resort place for package tours, there was the, the facilities were there. So all in all, all of those things, and it, it, of course, it's, it was very cheap to shoot there. So most of the biblical stuff went there. Now it's switched. You can't really go there. So now it's Morocco's back in again, and it was a fact. It's very stable Morocco out of all those countries. So now everybody goes to Morocco. It's purely shifting politics, really. That that was the main reason. You went back there when you shot um, Fed to Menace, correct? Yes. Yeah, we we went back. I shot you know, a number of weeks there, and because of Natalie Portman, we had to go because she had she was booked into Broadway. So George had to shift all the schedules, and we went. We were shooting in August, July, August, and the, even the locals call it suicide week. The temperatures get to 60s, and we had to shoot in that. There was no option. It's hot. <laughs> I love it there. It was incredible. It was went back. I mean, it's a luxury hotels, everything. comes to a tourist destination. Um, now, of course, that's um, too difficult to go, I think. I heard that uh, the shooting was really easy for Life of Brian, at least at first. They seemed to think that it was just going to go smashingly. Is that true? True, yeah. I mean, I think before that, they were, you know, they, had, they couldn't afford horses. That's why they had the coconuts. I mean, all of these things before that were very low budget. So this was a kind of proper film. And I think they thought, oh, it's a proper film, you know, but nothing changes. In fact, it gets tighter because <laughs> you've got much bigger budget to keep control of. So... Um, yeah, I think they went in thinking this was going to be like Hollywood, you know, <laughs> and they found it was very grueling, extremely grueling, both the pace and dealing with the weather and the food, all of this stuff. Were there moments of levity? I mean, you're shooting one of the funniest movies pretty much ever made. Was it a fun experience or was it all work and then worry about the play? It was it was two things. One, every time with the pythons in a hotel at night, you, you had to leave because you couldn't. Your jaw was aching from laughing. I mean, they, we had such fun, all of us, all the time, and they were nonstop. I mean, that was tremendous. Michael Palin was always the one in the middle. He was the bridge, keeping everything on an even keel. On the set, there was a lot of... This was really the first time the Pythons had come together, having become quite big stars individually. So there was a lot of... Um, there was Egos were rampant, and there was a lot of fights going on. Um, and I think it was a big load for Terry Jones. Um, they, they kind of fought against... Gilliam used to boss them around, always, because he bossed them around, you want the film this way and that. And they kind of resisted that for Life of Brian and said, we don't want that. We want a Python film, a complete film. So that's why they chose Terry Jones to direct it. 
Um, so, you know, Gilliam had his views on everything all the time, and um, the others did as well. And I, I just think, I think he got, got all at certain points the magnitude of what they were doing. And they were also fun times. And, they, you know, you see in this documentary where they're all having a go at each other and telling the truth. They made this documentary, so they interviewed each other and what they really thought of each other. It's quite funny. I mean, it's done, there's an element of truth there with kind of ironic humor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> um, it was grueling for us. I mean, it was just nonstop to get this thing together. It was a huge film, there's no question. You could see it. The production value is awesome on that film, you know? And again, Gilliam's forte is visual work. Um, and we wanted everything to be huge scale, Piranesi like wherever we could, and we were managing to pull it off, but it's you know, we were pushing the local crews always and our crews who came down and there were always people out with um diarrhea, basically, just gone down. It was happening to everybody. So then one of the funny things was I finally went down. I'm pretty good because I I go on health foods and stuff and I'm pretty good, but I I went down and they sent the doctor to me. So the, the door knocks and in walks Graham Chapman in a white coat with a stethoscope and a doctor's bag. Stands by the bed and he said, well, I'm the unit doctor now, so let's have a look. <laughs> Examining my throat and my everything like this and then he should turn over and I'm going, oh my God, what is going on? So eventually he says, well, it's just a case of diarrhea or something. He said, I think we should give you six aspirins a day and then you'll be fine. And he left. <laughs> so I phoned Tim Hampton and said, what the fuck is going on? And he said, no, he's a unit doctor. He is a doctor. He's a qualified doctor. He just decided he was getting bored in between not shooting and stuff. So he became the unit doctor. So he was going around treating everyone. <laughs> It became a Python sketch in itself, that one. Graham Chapman, I'm just inside stories, had become teetotal. He finally had to. Um, and the Pythons complained about him continually, saying they much preferred when he was drunk and crawling under tables and biting women's ankles to, this, they called it the boring man who just talked about his taxes. <laughs> we were all complaining, wishing he'd go back to being drunk again. He took it very seriously, the role, and um, he was the kind of only one in amongst them who was actually the lead, who could play that lead, in a way. Yeah, I always found that fascinating, that he is the one that plays the fewest characters in there, just because he is always on screen as Brian, and he does such yeah. a good job. Yes, exactly. That Holy Flying Circus movie, the one thing that keeps coming out of that film and what it kind of sounds like you're saying, too, is they keep they would continually mention that Michael Palin is one of the nicest people ever. Is that your experience as well? Yeah, Michael, the Pythons, they say it themselves in that documentary on them. They said Michael Palin lives in West Hampstead, so he doesn't quite live in Hampstead, and he doesn't live down at the lower end of Notting Hill. He lives in West Hampstead because it's the kind of correct in-between place, and they're all joking, saying he drives a Morris, Morris some car because it's not a Flash Bentley and it's not a broken-down old one. He's always that person in the middle who's keeping the equilibrium, and he was. There was no question he was the one keeping an even keel. Um, there was quite a lot of tension around on the set. Um, and, you know, Eric Ivor wanted it his way. Graham Chapman just got on with it. He just got on with the work. He didn't say much. Gilliam always wanted everything his way, and he always felt he was the film director and should be doing it. 
they drove the DP mad, I know, crazy with changes and the way it was being filmed and stuff. So there was a lot of kind of tension flying around that, that Michael Palin would always be in the middle of keeping an even keel amongst all of them. And it wasn't just, you know, as I said before, it was the difficulty of shooting what was a proper movie. This wasn't Python sketches. It was a whole complete story. Being in Tunisia, as, as you already said, you know that they came in thinking this would be a big Hollywood adventure. And in fact, it was a lower budget, stressful film to make in the time. There was a lot of work and a lot of heat and a lot of bad food, all this stuff. So they just had to get on with it. But, you know, at night, you know, they'd often be howling we laughed. <laughs> We'd always go and join I was kind of, you know, there's a few who were with us always in the bar or sitting around there or eating. So there was always that group together, really. And they weren't really able to fly in and out. They had to stay there. And they were all so, so on, much on camera, all of them, because they're playing different parts. And they all had very imposed ideas on what should be up on the screen. So that's where it drove the cameraman and the operators crazy a lot of the time because they were or trying to get what they wanted. And in the end, that worked. I mean, the film is just a complete, utter joy when you watch it. It's a fabulous movie. So whatever the process creatively, it works. So in the end, that's all you can expect. You know, very often there is a film law saying those films are the nicest to work on. Everyone has a great time and everything. It always turn out to be the worst film. There's a certain reality to that. You know, I have to say that after all these years, I never really realized that the Romans Go Home shot was uh, was a matte painting. I always thought that it was just real for some reason. After the sheep sequences and everything, then there's that, they're all walking towards Jerusalem. And we had to have Jerusalem on the skyline. So it was a very expensive matte painting to do. And I had suggested to Gilliam that I'd use cutouts. I worked with a designer called Philip Harrison a lot. We used to use cutouts three-dimensionally. You'd put several in front of each other. And if you got the light right, you couldn't tell. And that's what we did. We quickly created Jerusalem on the top of this hill out of cutouts and just painted it. And you go and get the dust from the floor and you add it to the, to the paint. So it all goes in the same. And we filmed exactly the right time of day. We worked out when we're then walking towards it. And no one's ever known they weren't walking to an ancient city. Damn right it did. I've never even thought about it. It sounds like there was the friction, especially between the two Terrys. And you had to work a lot with Gilliam. How was your relationship with him? Yeah, no, Gilliam was, um, you know, we were all on a common kind of path to get stuff done. It, you know, the, the only difficulty for us, and I know it drove my pop, prop men crazy, like there was one square, a, a town set, and Gillian wanted it completely dry and visually intact like that. Terry Jones walked on and said, no, I want it covered in green. So the poor prop guys did it green. Terry Gillian comes in and said, what's all this green everywhere? Take it down. So they took it down, and then Jones, that went on about four or five times. It went from green to dry to green to dry. Uh, stuff like that was going on all the time, which made it harder. But um, in the end, you know, the, there was a, it, it was a really great script. <laughs> and you could see the characters. You could see it was really funny and really good. So, I mean, when you're doing it, whatever, you know, films are usually grueling. And, and often in these countries in those early days, it's, it's not easy, as I said before. So you accept all of that and you just get on with it. Um, 
Terry's a great visual kind of explorer of ideas and stuff. So, I mean, I am too. So for me, it was a joy. I just, we just kept coming up with ideas. And then, you know, at the end, when we came back, we had to do the spaceship sequence. So knowing that I made Star Wars, they, they gave us 50 quid. That was it. So I sent John Beard off to a scrapyard and said, look, get me bits of plane, get me this. He came back with part of a helicopter fuselage. He got all sorts of stuff for this money. And Terry Gilliam had a, in Neil's yard in London, um, he had a studio. Um, Ken Houston was in the basement with the animation table because that's how he did all of that. And then above that, he had this small studio. So we built it in this tiny studio. We built that spaceship ourselves, which did it built the puppets and um, shot that ourselves with one of the camera assistants who was on and then we had to do the meteors so we just got black velvet and we hung meteors we made them painted on ourselves hung them on bits of fishing wire and we shot it all we made a bit of track and all within a very small studio we were just we thought well they did it on Star Wars we can do it here in the same way so we did so all of that was done with a crew of about eight or nine people just did it ourselves so you know it's fun Somewhere there, yeah, somewhere there exists because then John Goldstone, the producer, asked me because he knew I directed other stuff by then. He said, "Could could I direct a commercial for Life of Brian using the eye puppet?" So I did. That exists somewhere on film. John Goldstone must have it. It was a commercial for Life of Brian is coming, and they were talking about Life of Brian coming to the cinema. The two eye creatures. Yeah, and you know the guy going lucky sod. That's Charles Nod. That's the costume designer. <laughs> When Brian gets off the spaceship and it all, there's a guy there turns to him and says, you like yourself, something like that. That's, that's Charles Nose, the costume designer. Where does the role of a production designer kind of end and the costume designer kind of begin? Well, originally, the role of production designer, the costume designer came under them or worked under them. That was the original whole concept of it because you have to be in harmony because you can put beautiful set and if they put the wrong color on the costume, it completely destroys it and makeup too. So all of that came in under it and it... Um, Charles Node had done all of the Python films, and um, we, when we went, we we knew the um, Zeffirelli film. They kept all their costumes in, in a costume house. who made them, and you could rent it out. They owned it, and you could just rent. So we we rented most of the costumes in one go from there. And then we're kind of aging it down, dusting them down, you know, keeping them dirty. So they're very linked. Um, they should be anyway. Nowadays. And then the art director, if there was an art director, you know, some films just have art director, which is the director of all the art. It's all the props, sets, the visual look of the film. So it's the same title, basically. It's just now production designer has become the standard. It's slowly kind of come into that title since, I guess, the 50s, 60s. I got married. We decided to do it in Tunisia, my ex-wife now, but she was French. So we'd worked it out at the end of the shoot because we didn't want it. Obviously, I had to finish working and we didn't want this madness of going on. So, of course, the film went over and it was the last day of the shoot. And there was a uh, huge rap party, which became our wedding party at night. And Terry Jones dived off the edge of the... A restaurant into the sea and came back up completely naked and sung a Welsh aria to us. And, um, yeah, it was madness. <laughs> Neil, what's his name? Neil Innes? 
he kept distracting me and getting me out of the party and I was going, what the hell is going on? And he got me out and then finally then in came the Tunisians. They had five-fingered candle, which is Fatima's hand, and they came in singing this wedding song. It was absolutely beautiful, all with these candles and stuff. But that was Terry Jones thought, you know what, I'm not going to be outdone. So he... He sung as a Welsh aria, completely naked, dripping on the table with us holding handkerchiefs over his private parts because the Tunisians were so shocked. <laughs> Pretty mad, the whole thing. One of the things that always impressed me with, with the film is just not only are the Python such strong actors, but then the supporting cast is always so spot on as well. Yeah, I mean, those there is a group, you know, uh, John Young was in all the Python films. In fact, he's in Black Angel. I, I, he came and played the old man for me, and he thanked me because he said, you know, every Python film, he said, if they have someone to be dumped in custard, it's me. If they have somebody that they throw shit on, it's me. He always got hired for that job. <laughs> so he thanked me for giving him a role. <laughs> he, wasn't, he wasn't dumped in or dumped on. Yeah, nearly in it. I mean, those, uh, Carol, what's the name, Cleveland, yeah, they, they're all a, a stock. And, and the writer, the co-writer of Gilliam, who's always in the films, he co-writes scripts with Gilliam. They have a stock group of actors and actresses who were always with them. So they knew the Pythons and they knew how to... Because the Pythons kind of, in a way like Star Wars, everything was funny, but it was played realistically with the dirt and the, the visual aspects of it was very real and it was played very real. It was just very funny what they were saying. You know, and I mean, you know, the, the Roger, the, 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 the forum one where he's on the on the ledge calling out to the crowd I mean that when you were there we were there just shouting a megaphone to the Tunisian extras trying to make them lift their legs and do this so it's not funny at all and the dialogue was hilarious but the shouting over big megaphones trying to get a crowd who didn't know what the hell they were doing I mean they, they had no concept of pythons whether it was humor they couldn't even understand it but they were just yelling at them to raise their legs in the air to laugh to do that so you know, things like that on the day aren't the same. Oh, here's a story for you. I'm in the hotel one day, and then uh, they, they came back, I think, get him or one of the other, they said, Spike Milligan's here. We need to do a shoe sequence because he's agreed to do one shot in the film. And the reason Spike Milligan was there, and this is absolutely true, he, his father had told him the story how he lost his gun in Tunisia in the war, in World War II, when he was down in the desert. And Spike Milligan had come down to look for that gun. Nothing to do with Life of Brian. It was sheer accident. He happened to be in the same hotel at the same time. And they said, well, you've got to be in the film. And he said, well, I'll give you one shot. That's why it's so brief. It's like, follow the shoe, follow the shoe, and he's gone. That's why. And then he went off to look for his gun. And I remember I was talking to him on a Sunday, and he's, he was seriously looking for his gun. He was trying to work out with maps where it might be. Did he ever find the gun? I don't think so. <laughs> Last time we spoke, I talked to you a little bit about Black Angel, and it was right before that was available. How has that been received now that it's out on iTunes? We were number one for a few weeks, both here in the UK, which is, was pleasing. And... I guess from the Glasgow Film Festival, they worked out. We got about 30 million press hits online. It went huge. The BBC online article got 500,000 press hits in a week alone. 
and there was an Esquire Online article that went out, and that just went on to Yahoo. It just went viral. It was amazing what happened with it. So the, the, the thing that me that was most exciting, I was in a meeting with Carnaby Film in London, the, the big sales and uh, distribution company, and we were talking about another film, and then the, the executive said to me, but I want to do something sword and sorcery or a fantasy or sci-fi with you. What can we do? And by the end of the conversation, we were doing Black Angel, the feature film, because um, I told him the original idea was a was a graphic novel type of idea, and I plucked a little bit of the few ideas out for a short film, and it's different to what I would do as the graphic novel type big epic. So with, that's now in development, which is really exciting and how amazing, and 34 years later it comes around, but thank you, Game of Thrones. <laughs> a worldwide phenomena out of medieval sword and sorcery and Lord of the Rings, you know, it, from when I was trying to do it and Black Angel, it was just a no-go, no one wanted to know, to now that it's a very desired genre. Right. And I'd always wanted, you know, dreams to make Merlin and things, and then I found this ancient, ancient... Um, before he became Merlin, he was called Myrdin, which is a Scottish and a Welsh-claimed myth. So I'm able to use a very early incarnation of, of um, Mer- Merlin in the film. And it's, it's getting pretty good. And they're going to do a crowdfunding for the development. So I'm meeting them. I have to go to Budapest on another film on the, on the 14th of August. And they're coming. And then we're talking about then to launch in September. So that's, you know, it's amazing how this little film <laughs> just kind of never gone away. It's kept gnawing away and come back. And I made that right after Life of Brian because I signed up for the National Film School and Life of Brian being delayed, I couldn't start in uh, September when they started. And if I joined in January, I missed an entire term to go back wrote Black Angel while I was there and couldn't afford to make it. And then when I got the ED fund grant to make it, I kind of came out. So it was right in that, um, right in that time of um, uh, uh, Life of Brian. Will you do me a favor and let me know when the uh, Kickstarter or crowdfunding goes live? Yeah, well, of course, yeah. I'll try to let everyone know, because uh, I think it's... And we're going to offer some really cool stuff, like, because part of it, we I have to start in Morocco, and we're going to shoot down there in some of the ancient uh, cities um, where the film starts in what's called the Southland. So they're going to be offering, like, a trip down there and a visit to the Gladiator sets and the Kingdom of Heaven sets as well and all that stuff. So there's some quite good stuff coming. Thank you for Mr. Christian for talking to us about his work on The Life of Brian. You can go back and hear more of Roger Christian on our Battlefield Earth episode, which was one of our special deluxe episodes where we're going into Battlefield Earth and the Church of Scientology. We talk about the Master and all kinds of fun stuff. But this week, we're talking about another religion, another state-sanctioned religion. We are talking about Christianity and The Life of Brian. And apparently the Christians were not real happy with the way that that they were portrayed in Life of Brian, at least not all of them. 
Yeah, there was a little bit of an uproar. Now, since I was only a year old when this movie came out and Ken saw it on its original release, what do you remember about any pickets, any protests, anything in the media back then, sir? I had no problem getting in to see the film, and I did not notice at the screening I went to, I did not notice a darn soul with a sign or anything. There was no no protest outside the theater I went to. I, I was only vaguely aware of it at the time. Actually, I did go to see uh, the opening of uh, Last Temptation of Christ 10 years later, and when I went to that screening, there was a section of protesters. They were cordoned off to an area specifically to play to media, but anyone who wanted to see the movie there had no problem getting in. They were just playing to the media. So they were uh, hanging out in what they would dub during uh, the the protests of the second Gulf War during the George W. Bush administration, the free speech zone. The free speech zone. (laughs) That's what it was, yes. (laughs) And this was revolutionary. This was like 15 years before that second Gulf War. So, I mean, they were ahead of the curve. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> you know, actually, I kind of caught a an idea that people were upset about the movie when I first saw it. But, it, you know, I wasn't aware of it, like, on a major scale. It was more, I think, probably it was more a big deal in England than it was here. Yeah, I don't remember any controversy kind of stuff over here. But, again, I was... Uh, what, seven when this thing came out? So, I mean, I really wasn't too tuned into the media. If it wasn't about Star Wars, I didn't want to hear about it. Which is kind of odd, you think about it, because people seem much more upset over Last Temptation of Christ. And, uh, you know, uh, this was 10 years earlier. So you think that there would have been more of an outcry. Well, I think part of it might have been is that right about this time in the late 70s was when Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, Pat Robertson, all of that stuff, was just starting to get its footing and its political push because it was because of them that Ronald Reagan got elected in 1980. And then that that in the 1980s was when the moral majority really came into power, of course. And then by the 90s, they ended up with a lot of scandals, uh, you know, televangelists and others being caught with hookers and scamming people out of their money. And and that sort of damaged their brand for a little bit. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That is exactly when you would have expected this to happen, because that's when uh, politics and the religious right came together as a, a strategy by, uh, I want to say, right-wing extreme politics they kind of like took the religious people in as part of a strategy for winning elections and whatnot. You would think that that would have, but I don't remember anything like that. It was not a cause celeb for them over here. Yeah, we still had a we still had a president who had lust in his heart at this point. So that's true. Yeah, and, it's still the freewheeling seventies when it's like, who cares about this stupid movie? You know, it's we haven't gone back to core family values like we would in just a few years. It wasn't morning in America yet. Not yet. Not yet. That's the thing. That's the key. Not yet. It was quite a controversy over in the UK, though, from everything that you'll see uh, that you read about. And then also want to say there's a great uh, documentary, about an hour long, a little less, called The Secret Life of Brian. Secret Life of Brian is an interesting one because it seems like I was actually watching Secret Life of Brian and Story of Brian side by side last night uh, because I had seen Secret Life of Brian 
many times or, or several times, I should say. Uh, it's available over on Vimeo, and we'll post a link, or we'll probably even just post the movie up on our website, projectionjazzboot.com. But I'm watching Story of Brian, which is the documentary that came on the Immaculate Edition DVD, and I'm like, boy, this is really familiar. So I think that it's just a slightly different cut of Secret Life of Brian that is on the DVD, and I didn't look to see if, at the end, if Will Yap is credited. That's the director of the Secret Life of Brian, but, I mean, it's the same narrator, same interviews, just slightly different. I mean, there's a few extra bits here and there that are in Secret Life that aren't in um, the story of Brian. Well, I watched the documentary that was on the Criterion Edition, and I didn't catch any credits, but it was an interesting documentary. Yeah, the one on my single-disc old version is not even about any of the controversy. It was more of a documentary about the Pythons circa 1979 talking about them making Life of Brian, and it was all shot during that time with interviews on the set and whatnot. But then it goes back and it pulls stuff from the show and also from all of the other stuff that they had done in between, such as John Cleese doing Faulty Towers and Michael Palin and Terry Jones doing Ripping Yarns and Eric Idle doing Rutland Weekend Television and Graham Chapman doing other films that are not Python related. So, And uh, there's a, a section of Jabberwocky in there for uh, Terry Gilliam who had made uh, that just before they started making Life of Brian. Yeah, that is definitely not on the one that I watched at all. I mean, like they have a couple little bits that were shot during the actual making of, but really they, I don't think they talk about um, ripping yarns and faulty towers very much at all. And the ruddles. Yeah, I don't think there's any ruddles in this one <laughs> no, either. I must have seen the same one, or one that was similar to the one that Mike saw. Why don't we take a break and play an interview with Will Yap, the director of the documentary The Secret Life of Brian, after these important messages. <laughs> All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take uh, us to church. Uh, what can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. <laughs> uh, is there anyone's coattails you rode in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, <laughs> horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one <laughs> That is one star too many. Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, Scott. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. Well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo! That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com. 
or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of Murder and Menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. The start of it was that Channel 4 were making a season of films called the Offensive Comedy Season. Channel 4, they're a little bit more agent provocateur and, um, than the BBC, obviously. So they put into motion a whole week of programming about offensive comedy. And I'd made a film for them about a man called Roy Chubby Brown not his real name. Chubby is he's a very big man. So he's called Roy Chubby Brown as a, as a nickname. And he has sold millions and millions of DVDs of his live comedy. It's very, very rude. There's no way it could ever really be broadcast on, the, on TV. So he sells lots of DVDs. But they'd got access to Roy Chubby Brown. So I'd ma- I made a film about him. But as part of that same offensive comedy season, after that film, they wanted to make a um, film about the life of Brian. So I got hired as part of that same offensive comedy season to make um, the film about the life of Brian. How did you kind of get your start? Because this was far along in your career. I mean, you've done quite a few things before this. Yeah, I basically had, I started at the BBC and I worked on, uh, as a researcher on, on a couple of shows. I think you had a show in the States called, uh, it was called 911, I think. It was presented by William Shatner. The BBC um, did their own version called 999, presented by uh, Michael Burke. And that was my start at the BBC. About five years later, I got my a break to work with Louis Theroux. He had uh, made some films for the BBC, and I got to work with him. And we did about five years' work together, making films sometimes about America, sometimes about the UK. They were, you know, they were, they were quite high-profile shows. 
who I, d- I don't know whether you've heard of a guy called he's he's, uh, he's dead now but he's um, there's been a lot of controversy about a guy called Jimmy Savile we made a film which was access to him and he since he died we made this film 10 years ago but since he died last year or a couple of years ago he's come out he's been identified as probably one of the most prolific sex offenders in the country and certainly in show business so he's highly controversial highly controversial I mean he wasn't that controversial when we made a film about him 10 years ago but obviously since he's died and all this has come to pass come to light then obviously that's you know that's uh, revisited quite a lot that um, that film so basically I did I did five years with Louis Theroux and that was my kind of um, my break and then I left the BBC and I, when I went freelance so after that I started to do films on a variety of different subjects I made films on uh, a lot of access films. That's that's always one of the sort of uh, the bigger categories of things that I do has been access films. So I've made films with uh, Courtney Love, where I spent about a month with Courtney Love, and this Roy Chubby Brown film, and various others. But I suppose the, the Monty Python stuff was one of the first kind of um, more archive-based shows that I'd ever done because obviously it showed lots of the film and it, and it, and it was uh, talking heads with these, uh, with these guys who have been my heroes for, for many years. I have to ask, what was it like spending a month with Courtney Love? Do you know what? That was kind of freaky, kind of. I mean, it was, it was interesting. I, I, I liked her very much, although she is prone to highly eccentric moments, clearly. She was great to make a film with. She was great to make a film with. Like I say, she she has very lucid days, and then, as, as as I'm sure you can imagine, less lucid days. So you'd been a fan of Monty Python growing up? Oh yeah, huge fan, a huge fan. I know I only watched. I did, the Monty Python's Flying Circus was on a little late for me. I was I was only kind of you know I don't know when did the Monty Python's Flying Circus start? I'm trying to remember. It must have been in the the 70s wasn't it yeah anyway i was very i was pretty young then but i watched bits of that but it all came together for me listening to their albums repeatedly 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 we would listen my my, i had uh three brothers we would listen to that stuff again and again and again and then the films obviously came and elevated it even more so we we couldn't get enough of the first the first two films for us were pretty much as good as it could get so i imagine you guys probably did the routines and you all had your assigned parts and all that of course and who you know boys of, of of our ages at school could basically recite huge amounts of the live albums and the and the films endlessly less girls did it but guys boys were <laughs> boys were very good at it so what was it like meeting your your idols well it was it was uh, it was interesting because i was thinking today when we got permission from all of them to get interviews and it wasn't a collective response even though clearly they they were pleased that we were making a a documentary for channel four about the film that they'd made they were initially it was a, it was just terry jones and terry gilliam who agreed to do interviews meeting terry jones and terry gilliam i mean to be honest all of them were, it was absolutely wonderful they are people who've uh, who've kind of shaped my sort of comic sensibility or, or or my hoped comic sensibility over the years forever but it was just terry and terry initially who said yes michael was very busy and he, he you know i think he was starting to do his diaries and he was very busy and john Cleese was actually i'm too busy to do this but then I was in, in the States and we managed to get a meeting with Eric Idle and talk 
talked Eric Idle around to doing an interview for this. And when Eric said yes, then the others, basically, I think, because nobody wanted to be the one who said no, and nobody wanted to be the one who was left out. So then John Cleese said yes, so we were able to go and film him. Uh, on a later trip and then once that had happened then Michael Palin said yes too so in the end and I think it's probably the way the Monty Python team work quite a lot in the end they all want to be individuals clearly but if they're going to do anything which is tied to that body of work then they all feel like they must be involved and rightly so you know they're all on that on that part together so um, yeah it was this gradual chain a little domino of Pythons that led to them all taking part How long did it take for this uh, project to complete? It must have been initiated i can't remember what time of year it was but it must have taken probably about i'd say about four or five months other than getting the pythons in line what were some of your other big challenges for this one well to be honest it's actually finding all the great archive which i know has been used many times since but going back to tv stations and finding which local TV stations had reports of like terrible protests or you know unrest in the streets, and th- that footage took a took a fair bit of finding, and also the the wonderful TV show that um, John Cleese and Michael Palin are on with the uh, is he the Bishop of Southwark or something I can't remember his, who that guy is you know the one I mean though don't you right yeah the, getting clearing that archive and getting to that archive but mostly the American archive was um i have to say i'm I sh- oh, clearly i'm and I, I sound like i'm taking the credit for finding it i i didn't find it there was a re- film researcher who in the end got to uh, the heart of it and uh, found those clips clearly those but those things are on like low band umatic or whatever the whatever cassettes were used in in uh, in those days on some dodgy formats and uh I remember it was hard to get all that stuff to, together. But, yeah, that, that, technically that was hard to find. Those things were hard to find. But it was mostly, clearly it was mostly about getting the access to the Pythons, to each one. By that time, in the 70s, it sounds like the BBC was actually keeping their tapes instead of kind of recycling them? Well, as well, some shows they did, some shows they didn't. Sometimes there would be a guy who would come in and say, we need to clear, the, clear this shelf. I think, and then sometimes they wouldn't. So they they lost they've lost some uh, amazing stuff. Um, but thankfully, that particular tape had been found. What was nice was to be able to play longer clips from that um, from that show because the tension in the studio is so palpable and so brilliant. And the two of them struggling, you know, doing their best to hold it together in front of that provocation. So it was nice to be able to play that a little bit longer form because I think the Bishop of Southwark is a, it's a towering performance I mean an appalling performance but but <laughs> incredible well then I liked seeing the kind of answer footage with Rowan Atkinson oh yes of course yeah of course yes of course yeah I don't know I'd forgotten about that that was good that was a show called I think it was probably called Not the Nine O'Clock News that was the show where he came to uh, to fame really and that was happening just that was taking off just uh, at the same time clearly as that interview done for um with the bishop himself i find the the history of the life of brian so fascinating just how tough it was to get made Mm. the controversy about it it's such a for me as an american such a hidden piece of history because i don't know if it had that same kind of impact in the u.s or not 
It was controversial, and it was um, it did. I, I do remember, uh, you know, a feeling of protest and a feeling of of people up in arms. But clearly, you know, that was that was then, and, and this is now. But I I don't because the Americans, you know, I think would always do a protest better. <laughs> would always do things a bit a bit more vocally, a bit more. You know, let's really get out there. Let's really protest. From the coverage at the time, and even retrospectively, you can tell that America just did the whole protest thing bigger and better you know they just do so although there was some there were there, were, there are rankles here and you know stern letters written by people with horn rimmed glasses talking about how appalling it was there weren't there, there weren't so many like full-on good old-fashioned let's start marching with placards so it was great for me to because i didn't i didn't really know about all that you know that stuff the u.s uh, appreciation or lack of appreciation for it from both sets of of, of followers and supporters so i uh, it was lovely to 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 see that stuff and to to uh, explore just how galvanized a negative response th- there was in some places. What were some of the things that you found out during the making of the documentary that kind of surprised you? You know, for me, it was probably the personal testimony of um, of the Pythons themselves, which would which which f- filled in the. Uh, filled in the more personal uh, blanks that I that I would have had so um, Michael being you know you know and God bless Michael Michael is such a lovely man but you would I was surprised how 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 worried he was for example about um, the negative response I think particularly via his mother so he's feeling protective of his mother and I thought that was very sweet John clearly is bombastic and um, uh, and kind of loved it and, and relished it and, and thought it was the greatest thing of all to be in a ding dong battle with um, Christian fundamentalists is probably as good as it can get I think for uh, for John, John Cleese so no I mean for me it's, it's it's the more the personal testimony of of, of you know how this thing came to pass and how I guess the very genesis of it, you know, encapsulates just how the Pythons worked, which was not to have some fully formed idea, but which was to have the confidence and the kind of maybe the, uh, the the comfort within the group to allow themselves. I mean, you know, and nicely on an island in the Caribbean, but still to allow themselves the time to experiment, to read, to research, to do it like proper little Oxbridge undergraduates you know, to really thoroughly research their subject, you know, bring those thoughts and that research to the table, have a chat, work things through, you know, and actually from a beginning whereby they might have thought, you know, this is going to be a funny film, let's do something about Jesus. They stopped that idea in its tracks and thought Jesus isn't funny. The teachings of Jesus, the the writings of Jesus are not funny. Uh, he says some amazing things. And, um, you know, so they have a very considered response. But what is funny is is the followers and who all disagree about what they should follow and who, who said what what and how it all happened and when it all happened so for them it's the uh, the blind followers of the faith uh, but that the, but that but that process of finding exactly what they should be skewering what they should be attacking uh well not attacking maybe that's the wrong word what they should be skewering was something they all kind of went through in their own way collectively and individually to find that so it's never you know you you watch these things and you think wow they they came up with a brilliant idea, sat in a room for two weeks and wrote a script. It wasn't. It was a, it was a, it was a gradual process and it was a long process of finding exactly where the laughs were and where the, where the honesty of it was. You know, that's fascinating for me to, to see how something actually came to pass like that. What are your favorite bits from Life of Brian? We could talk about favorite bits probably all for the rest of the day. But I think that if I was going to pick like a couple... 
I'd say the Latin lesson, you know, when they're writing on the wall and the, the centurion comes up and basically berates them for spelling it wrong. Romans go home. That's that's what <laughs> that one for me is is uh, is brilliant Python. That's absolutely the essence of Python in the subverting that that message and that 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 act completely and being hilarious about it at the same time. That's brilliant. Yeah, and always look on the bright side of life. I suppose, you know, if I if I if I watched it again tonight, I'd probably think of how it does more. But you know, those are the ones that rise to the surface almost immediately. How was the documentary received? Do you know what it went down really well actually. It went down really well. And um even I mean it went out quite late. They had to show their offensive comedy season quite late. Roy Chubby Brown is is absolutely filthy and, and the language is appalling. They had to go out very late. But the, even the even the uh, Life of Brian thing, obviously, you know, Channel Four is being as controversial as they wanted to be, they still had to put it out at like ten o'clock, I think. But it went down very well. I think the uh you know, it is a universally loved film, universally cherished and loved film. So there are a lot of people waiting to uh to see how it all came together and to find out the story of it. So um yeah, I ha- I have to say, and not all the films I make <laughs> go down well. So in that particular case, it did. What are you working on now? I'm working on a show. It's a two-parter for the BBC. I'm not a freelance, so I, but but this is for a, a production company working as a commission for the BBC. Goes out in August. It's basically two comic actors um they're presenters but they're comic actors they're they're, they're kind of famous over here but I, I don't think they're famous over there they're called simon day and john thompson they are middle-aged men with soft hands uh comedians and they are go they've been to argentina to uh learn the ways of the gaucho so uh they've been uh, out on rugged landscapes doing rugged things uh with uh rugged gaucho type men and the drive in patagonia and that kind of thing so a, a, a kind of um, factual but funny if you uh, know what I mean is there a good place for people to keep up with you um, you know what I have a uh, site on the Vimeo um, the Vimeo site if uh, uh, they look up Will Yap on Vimeo I have uh, uh, Life of Brian's up there and uh, The Secret Life of Brian rather and uh, Courtney Love is on there and, and, and quite a few other films too so that's, um, that's that's quite a good place to see anything else Thanks to Will Yap for coming on the show. You can find out more about his work over on our website, projection-booth.com. So, Rob, you kind of turned me on to a movie while we were doing the research on uh, Life of Brian that I hadn't heard of before called Holy Flying Circus. Yeah, this I stumbled upon at the library just on a lark. I was going through and I saw this thing and I was like, Holy Flying Circus, what's this? And it looked like all the pythons on the front of the disc, but they're played by actors. And then I flipped it over and it says it's a film about what happened behind the scenes as the controversy was brewing. We'd like you to sign our petition to help get Life of Brian banned. I don't think it should be banned. We believe it's evil and should be banned. Protests here? No, I wouldn't think so, no. Because the great British public... They aren't quick to judge or completely close-minded. Oh, no, sorry. They are quick to judge and massively close-minded. You did sort of bring this on yourselves. Christianity stands as a metaphor for all organised religions and the abuse they're open to. I know various churches are writing to their members to ask them to put pressure on their councils for a boycott. 
What about Life of Brian? For the UK premiere, we get the Pythons versus the Pope. We don't need to explain ourselves. It's all in the film. Why make fun of religion? We're not. And even if we were, is that so bad? Look how much you're upsetting people. Now, you might think they're stupid people or priggish people, but they're real people. This could be the greatest TV show ever made. Any idea who we're up against? Not a clue. You don't have to make up your own minds. The church has spoken for you. Wrong! You put so much pressure on yourself. It's only a chat show. It's not, though, is it? This is about the future of comedy. It was a BBC made-for-TV movie. It's a 90-minute film. It's quite well done and uses a lot of different ideas from, uh, I would say, the visual and storytelling aspects of Monty Python in order to tell what led up to the famous confrontation between John Cleese and Michael Palin, the um, – was it the bishop – and also some guy, uh, some conservative Christian guy on the uh, TV, on the BBC one night. Only yesterday in The Scotsman, a prominent news item headed New Superstar Rao revealed that the film Jesus Christ Superstar has this week been banned from a cinema in the Western Isles as blasphemous, a curse placed on another remote Scottish cinema which dared to screen Superstar in 1976, led to the recent closure of that particular house of entertainment. If Superstar still has this trouble nearly ten years after its creation... What hope does Monty Python's Life of Brian have today? Soon, the opinions of John Cleese, Michael Palin, Malcolm Muggeridge, and Mervyn Stockwood, the Bishop of Southwark. Michael, why the name Brian? Well, I don't know. We've always used Brian in Python to, to portray a certain sort of character, fairly anonymous, and, and I apologise to anyone called Brian, slightly sort of... I mean, there's a good chance of... dim. <laughs> It's slow, slow to, to, to catch on. And there's a fighting chance of at least one Brian watching tonight, so be well, careful. Well, I don't know. Have you seen the figures? <laughs> <laughs> what inspired the film, Life of Brian? I mean, how did that strange idea take root in... And, and in, indeed, in whose skull did it take root? Well, uh, we're not exactly certain. It's always difficult to, mm. to, to, to find the exact moment when it, when it came up. But I know that when we were... Um, we were going around the world sort of doing premieres for, for the Holy Grail. And we had a lot of time to spare in airports and cafes and restaurants. And we got to thinking about a new film and what particular area we might go in. And we were still keen to do a historical film. I said, more fun dressing up and all that. We'd done the Bowler Hatter City Gents on, on Python. And I, th- I think it was Eric who came up with this title out of the blue called Jesus Christ Lust for Glory. Um, <laughs> and I must admit that when we started talking about it, we actually explored the idea of doing a comedy film about Jesus, you know, with, with all the jokes about someone trying to book a table for 12 at the Last Supper. <laughs> so, so, you know, Saturday night, I'll do you three fours. <laughs> Come in tomorrow, no, it's got to be tonight, and all those jokes. <laughs> and, and the more, that, but the more that we read about Jesus and, and the background to, to his life, it was quite obvious that there was very little to ridicule in Jesus' life. Um, and therefore we were sort of onto a loser. The characters we like to portray in Python are failures, are dim, are idiotic, are sort of incapable in one way or another. Jesus was a straight, direct man, so making very good sense. And so we, we decided that it would be very, sort of just a rather shallow film, just about Jesus. So we got Brian in. And our guest reviewers are Malcolm Muggeridge and Mervyn Stockwood, the Bishop of Southwark. I'd like to ask you, Bishop, first, uh, 
What was your review of the film? Well, here's a question I would ask. Um, what are you really trying to say in this film? I believe you were on this a wee bit earlier, but unfortunately we only got the picture outside, not the voice, mm. which was uh, something that husbands might want their wives. But, uh, <laughs> the, but so we didn't quite hear your defence of it. But what I want to... What are you really trying to say? Now, I wasn't the least bit horrified. People say, oh, no, Bishop, when you go there, you'll be absolutely horrified. I wasn't at all. After all, I wasn't vicar of the university church for nothing. I am... I mean, I'm familiar with undergraduate humour. <laughs> I was also a governor of a, of a mentally deficient school. <laughs> and once I had a prep school master, and I felt frightfully at home. I thought I was just sort of back on old familiar ground this evening. But I really wondered, I mean, what you were trying to say. I, I do hope you don't think I'm, I'm being unkind, because I know some of you, and I'm very fond of you and have respect for you. But I say this quite frankly... I, I simply don't think it was worthy of you. It was the sort of thing, as I say, that at Cambridge the footlights did on a damp Tuesday afternoon. Before I ask John and Michael to perhaps answer one of those points, could I bring in Malcolm and ask you what your review, if review Certainly, is right? Certainly, yes. Um, of course, I agree entirely with the bishop that it is quite humbug to say that this is not a, a, um, a ridiculing of the founder of the Christian religion and of the incarnation in an extremely cheap and tense-rate way. Remember that that story of the Incarnation was what our whole civilization began with. So the problem that we... No, seriously, the problem yeah. that, we, that we have got is, is that you think that we're ridiculing Jesus. Mm. And we say, um, sort of sincerely and truthfully, mm. that that is certainly not what we intended to do, and I believe that we're not. And I can best answer that, I think, by answering Malvid's um, question, which is that um, what were we trying to do? And I think it, it comes out it spelled out perhaps rather too plainly rather too banally at one point when he says, make up your own mind, don't let other people tell you. And we would absolutely deny, at least I would, that there was any attempt to say you should not believe in Christ. What we're saying is take a critical view find out about it don't just believe because somebody tells you to. Somebody in the pulpit says something, question it. So it tells the tale of, okay, we've made the film, and then uh, now uh, how do we deal with the controversy? And there's a filmmaker by the name of Owen Harris who directed it, and it's quite good. I, I think that the, the folks who play the Pythons nail it uh, really well, especially the guy who plays John Cleese and Michael Palin. And what you were saying about, uh, I think it's the guy who also plays Terry Jones plays Michael Palin's wife. So they do that sort of men cast as women thing in here as well. Have either of you guys ever seen a film about historical figures in which the casting, uh, they, that a collection of actors could both look as much like the people they're playing and sound as much like the people they're playing as in this film? I can't think of anything. Well, I got to say, the guy that played Eric Idle, Steve Punt is his name. I honestly thought it was Idle in a lot of scenes, and I had to do a double take because, yeah, voice was spot on, look was right there, and yeah, all of these guys. I mean, 
I guess I'm not that familiar with Michael Palin because I was like, yeah, I can kind of see him. The guy who was doing Terry Gilliam had the voice down, which is a great feat. So yeah, there were some moments in here. I was just like, this is really good. Well, I'm saying, I'm saying there are moments when practically each one of the six actors portraying the Python troop, there are moments when they got it. Like you do have to look twice. Oh yeah. Yeah. Darren Boyd as John Cleese. I was really impressed, especially with his delivery. I thought that he just had that John Cleese impersonation just to a T. And he's that tall, you know? Yeah. He looks like him, too. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. A confluence there, you know? Height, appearance, and he sounds like him, too. I mean, jeez. I mean, I imagine that's how he makes, uh, you know, he's got a part-time living out of it, maybe. Yeah, he's he's now the spokesman for Schweppes. <laughs> <laughs> I hope all of our UK listeners get that joke. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty impressed by this. There were moments where I was just like, eh, yeah, this is a little much. Like, sometimes, like, Michael Palin has this dream sequence within a dream sequence within a dream sequence. It's like, it's more layered than Inception was. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is getting a little old here and there. And then... I liked the moments, though, where they were kind of breaking the fourth wall. There's one moment in particular that I really enjoyed where some character makes a reference that is historically inaccurate, and then they cut to one of the viewers of Holy Flying Circus who's writing this angry letter (laughs) to BBC Four right, (laughs) and sending it all the way up the chain, and you've got the guy who's really nervous and coming in and talking about how they have a complaint, and the guy just, you know, balls it up into a ball of garbage, and then they play boom shot this and start dancing which is completely you know not a song from the era so i was like okay this kind of works for me so every once in a while i was like this is brilliant but uh overall i was like yeah this is pretty good i i liked how they built up to the debates and everything and just the way that they kind of portrayed that and they did it in a nice way it wasn't like i was afraid that it was going to be like this kind of like billy elliott type film where it was like oh these guys were really struggling and then they made this film and then they had to struggle some more and then they overcome it overcame adversity and everyone in the audience was really pulling for them and you know they had this moment of triumph but luckily it's not that at all they really just kind of take the piss out of everything Thing. Yeah, I for me, I was in the in this context of this movie, I became more intrigued with the story of the reception of the film. And I found the intrusions with the comedy and breaking the fourth wall kind of like just that intrusions as like, because they're not going to do I wouldn't expect anyone to be able to to interject as well as the pythons would have been interjected no. in the same way. So it was kind of like I felt I was pulling for him. I wanted it to work. But at the same time, I was thinking, get on with the story. The story's really interesting. Yeah, you can't really out Monty Python, Monty Python. And I can understand why they felt probably obligated that they needed to do this yeah, kind of I zaniness. Get, yeah, I get that. But yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I was like, okay, all right, yeah, this this is all right, but yeah, please, let, let's get back to this. Because the story of the Pythons themselves, to me, is very fascinating, and just um, like the group dynamics and everything, and the way that uh, Cleese was vacillating between going on the show and not going on the show, and just his complications and everything, I felt to be really interesting. I kind of wondered, <laughs> this whole idea of Michael Palin is the nicest man that ever lived i was like was he a producer on this show what was going on with this <laughs> but that's the thing that's funny is when you watch the like i said the documentary that i saw 
that's on the one disc criterion that I have from the the set. There's other people that say, you know, Michael's like the nicest guy. And then when you see Terry Gilliam cast him in Brazil as the head torturer in Brazil, <laughs> the reason that Terry Gilliam gives for that is Michael Palin's the nicest guy ever. <laughs> so the idea that the head torturer would be the nicest guy ever in a family man is perfect. So the idea that Michael Palin is this really like nice, sensitive dude doesn't seem that far-fetched for me, given the stuff that I've read or heard or interviews or whatever. I I find it fascinating to see that aspect of the relationship between John Cleese and Michael Palin played up, uh, played out. uh, The fact that they're personality wise, they're, they're different from each other. And I found that really fascinating. That was one of the aspects of, of watching this that I really enjoyed uh, seeing how two disparate characters can collaborate with each other in such a tight unit and manage to get along and, you know, proceed and together. Yeah. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Owen Harris, the director of Holy Flying Circus. My name's Owen Harris. Uh, I'm director. Monty Python's Life of Brian, when did you first uh, become aware of it and sort of the controversy that surrounded it upon its initial release in the UK? I think that uh, when, I, when, when Life of Brian uh, was released, I was, I think, still in my very early teens, um, if not younger. Um, so I was first aware of um, Life of Brian uh, really when I was a teenager and I started watching it on video and it was one of the you know, it's one of the, the rites of passage films, I think, that you watch when you're a teenager, and Life Brian was one of it. So, but as for the sort of the big um, furore that, was, uh, that, 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 that followed the release of it, I probably was too young to really remember that. Um, it's only when doing the, the, the Holy Flying Circus film that I started discovering more and more about it. How did uh, Holy Flying Circus develop? Was it um, a script that came to you, or was it an idea you had and you worked with the writer? No, it was a script that came to me. It was a script that was written by Tony Roach, um, and I had just completed a series of a show called Misfits, and um, and I popped in. They they sent me the script, and I popped in to see the production team and met with the writer. Um, and it was just it was just a very the script felt very I guess quite avant garde and very fresh for uh, a television um, mockumentary in a way. It's a ninety minute uh, uh, um, it's a ninety minute film for the BBC, um, and it just felt very very playful and very Pythonesque but without being too sort of, without trying to rip off the Pythons in any way, it was done as a sort of homage to them, but having fun with their, with their legacy in the, in the same way that, that Python would have fun with legacies in a way. And that's what I found very appealing about it. I was going to ask about that, sort of how you were able to balance all of that, you know, because it does have, as you were saying, very documentary feel, and it's also a feature. So you weren't exactly in the room, so you don't know what the conversations were like amongst them. And was just wondering how you were able to balance all that. Was that in the script, or did you have particular ideas in terms of okay, well, this section has to be this way and that way? Ultimately, it, it's it's a bit of fun, um, and what it does, it touches on the same sort of um, uh, topics, freedom of speech, and things like that that the Pythons were dealing with. In, in but in, they were dealing it with it in their own way, um, and by using using the sort of the backdrop of. Um, the life of Brian and the reaction to life of Brian. It allowed us to also sort of examine what what you can say in comedy, in the name of comedy, and what you can get away with. 
Um, and it just was a, it was just a very very playful script. So in terms of sort of what I mean, we all we all obviously by by this time you know I I'd watched a lot of Python by this point. So um, in my life, and and obviously Tony Tony the writer is a big Python fan. Um, but I think that the one thing we weren't you know it wasn't to the point we weren't. Um, at no point were we trying to do a Python. We just wanted to have fun, and this was the story that we were telling. Um, and I think that the one big thing about Python's humour is that it's very playful. I think it was it, at the time that the Pythons came out, it was it was the, probably the first time in certainly in British comedy, apart from maybe the Goons, that people of a certain age realised that they could actually um, enjoy being silly. Um, and I think it was very much in homage to that sort of spirit, really, um, of silliness um, and playfulness that that the that the piece that we did um, was celebrating, really. The one thing that was amazing to me was your cast, and they do such an amazing yep. job um, living in these uh, the people that we know who you know are, are actors, yep. but also members of Python. And and I was wondering how you approach them to sort of first, you know, do the casting, but also to be like. You know, this is inspired by not so much uh, an impersonation of per se. Yeah, well, I mean, I think first of all, we all had to get, we all had to sort of shake off the um, the pressures of of I guess uh, playing playing with 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 greats in a way. And I think that certainly for the cast, it was it was a case of um, for Charles Edwards and Dar- and Darren Boyd in particular, um, the the Palin and the the Cleese figures. I mean, I think you could probably get very bogged down in the sort of the, the gravity of, of taking on those roles. And I think that what we had to do, first of all, is, as you say, we didn't want them to be poor impersonations. They just had to sort of enjoy embodying the sort of, I guess, uh, I guess the, the slightly more stereotypical sides to their characters, which allowed us to sort of um, mine as much humour out of the parts as possible. I think that, you know, if we had taken the, the approach of wanting it to, uh, of being very true to Python in, in terms of character, and we hadn't had that sense of play to it, I think it would have been a much more, a much more difficult ask. But as it was, because we wanted to play with them, and it was done out of, um, I think it was done out of a certain amount of um, uh, respect to them as characters that we didn't that we didn't try to mimic them in that way. We did it. We we just took the sort of the bits that we all know about them and love about them um, and used those parts to turn them into sort of characters. Because then you're going back to the sorts of you're, you're creating characters, that, the, the parts of those characters that people people remember about the Pythons and, and love and enjoy. Another part that really plays a nice role in, and you were talking about being inspired by and not trying to rip off, is all of the great um, animation and stuff like that that Terry Gilliam did on the original show yeah. and how you were able to incorporate that stuff in. And I was wondering what the thinking was in terms of the development of that. It's funny because I think with the, with the Pythons, I think quite a lot of that animation came out of things like budget. And it was a way of, of creating scenes and characters. Um, and it was something that Terry Gilliam could do and they could do it on a budget. And strangely for us, it was, it was sort of the same. Um, it was, I mean, it also feels very much part. It's, it's another character of Python in a way. Terry Gilliam's character is most defined by his animations, just like, um, Cleese is defined by his wonderful anger and Palin's defined by a certain, another style of humor. And it would have been, it would almost have been like ignoring one of the Pythons if we hadn't had a little bit of animation in there breaking in and out. And, and also I think it's nice. I think that, that you know, at that, at that time in, in British television and British humor, we were still, 
lot of it still was coming off of the stage. I mean, the Pythons themselves did, the, you know, it came, a lot of their stuff either went onto the stage or came off of the stage and off the idea. So it is quite theatrical. And that breaking of the, you know, breaking down the barriers between the screen and what you're seeing and where you're going and these sort of playful little wormholes that animation allow you to create um, seemed sort of perfect for the style of story that we were, we were telling. And also in terms of in terms of budget, we have a we have a puppet sequence halfway through, through the film that was originally meant to be a live action sequence, sort of based on sort of suddenly turning into slightly crouching tiger hidden dragon style thing, and we simply didn't have the budget for it. Um, so we just thought it might be fun to turn that into a sort of a wonderful, quite elaborate puppet sequence. And again, sort of taking our lead from from the Pythons in terms of being able to sort of break out of a scene into something quite different. It gave us the freedom to sort of be that playful. So it was partly a nod towards, you know, very much a nod towards the Pythons, those little sort of flights of fantasy, but also um, to do with our own sort of necessities and resources. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was lovely. It felt really um, liberating to be able to sort of dive in, dive wherever you fancied going um, to tell the story, really. You talked about how that changed from a live action to a puppet animation piece, and I was wondering, the original script, were there any scenes or particular things that were originally in the story, but since you had to make it for 90 minutes and your budget limitations, what things uh, had to go? With all of these things, you probably start off with, with quite um, brand ideas, and then you look at things like budget, and you look at things like schedule and time. And I actually think that we actually managed to get a lot of what we wanted to do into the film. Um, a part of that was because Tony wrote a very, a very um, enjoyable and quite sort of pacey script anyhow. So in terms of action and things like that, you've got, you get a lot out of these dialogue sequences and you have a lot of characters you can have fun with. Um, so I don't really think there was really very much that we left behind. There were certain scenes that, that, that simply for sort of the pacing of the film and, and, uh, and things like that that we ended up sort of cutting out. Um, there are a couple of other things that maybe, maybe were slightly uh, closer to the to the bone in terms of character that we decided not to sort of use simply because we didn't feel we needed to necessarily go there, and it was nicer to keep it slightly lighter on its feet rather than get, getting too heavy with the story. And I think that you know certainly it was a revelation to all of us slightly the fact that we managed to, to although it was I guess it was a uh, a fantastic reimagining and it was it was a comic piece. Um, we enjoyed the fact that we were able to get a little bit of drama into it and certainly the relationship between Palin and his wife and also the relationship between Palin and Cleese, although it was largely sort of fantastical and played for humour, um, it was nice that we were able to get a little bit of soul into it. Um, and, and But beyond that, that's as far as we needed to really take it, I think. That was one of the things I also liked in the casting was that much in the Python style, uh, Michael Palin's wife is played by a man, but there is a lot yeah. of gravitas in those scenes. There really is a lot of heart in those scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think that was sort of conscious. We... we we didn't, I mean, it, it wasn't, we, we sort of came across that as we went. Um, I sort of felt as though we didn't want to do screechy Python women, purely because I think that we, you might not have sustained a 90-minute film with a character that was doing that. And also it felt like we were going very, very close to just doing a sort of a poor version of a Python. Um, but also, I mean, I think that, uh, I think it also comes out of the casting and... Um, 
and Rufus Jones, who plays um, Palin's wife and also plays Terry Jones, came in and as we were doing the casting, I, I asked him to try and do a slightly softer and more tender, uh, quite a feminine sort of performance for the wife. And he did something so lovely with it that we sort of couldn't ignore it. And that became Palin's wife. Um, and it, I think it really adds something to the film. It really sort of adds a sort of an extra um, bit of pressure on Palin in terms of the decisions he makes, because she's not, she's not just comic, although she's very funny. Um, it's you get a sense that there's a there are greater things at stake because of their relationship, and I and I like that. I like what we managed to get out of that. I was wondering if uh, any of the Pythons have seen it, and what have you heard? They have. I think they all have now. Um, and certainly, there were very um, certainly. I mean, Michael Palin was very very uh, very nice and sent a very lovely email to the writer, um, and uh, and was very supportive. And I think in the end, they all. Um, I get the feeling that they, you know, I. I mean, what I hope is that they realise the, the, the spirit that it was done in, and it was done. Uh, it wasn't like we were trying to remake a piece of Python without the Pythons. It was the fact that we were using using their story to talk about a moment in British history and in, in terms of history in, in general with regards to satire and comedy and freedom of speech and these sorts of things, and very much in the way that they enjoyed retelling tales with a twist um, and with a sense of humour and a sense of um, silliness, I guess, in a way. We we use them and the, the characteristics of the Pythons that we all love and remember very fondly and are very much part of the sort of British comedy um, makeup in a way. And we use those sorts of characteristics to then retell our tale. And I think that I think that what I hope is in the end that they enjoyed that. I mean, I think at the beginning when we set out, I think there were possibly a few little question marks as to what is this thing the BBC is doing. Um, sort of in the name of Python. Um, but I think by the end of it, I hope they, they all realized that we were doing something that was, um, that was fun and it wasn't attempting to be, you know, for me, when I read, uh, Tony's script, it felt, it felt very avant-garde and almost a little bit sort of, um, theatrical in the same sort of way that sort of Gondry plays with, with space and time and sort of the, the images. And uh, it felt quite contemporary in a way, even though it was all set in the seventies. It's the little, the little sort of switches and dynamic and perspective and, and then the animation and the puppet, you know, and I think it actually felt quite contemporary in a way that you suddenly realize how the influence of Python is probably influenced far more greatly other people and Terry Gilliam's influence on cinema, things like that. And, um, and I think hopefully they recognize that's what we were doing with it. And certainly what, I mean, what I've heard is that they, they, they seemed pretty happy in the end of what we'd done. When you look at Life of Brian as itself, you know, what do you see as the impact on British humor, maybe British film, television, and, and maybe even yourself as a filmmaker? It's the sort of question we ask ourselves because I think when you, when you, before being involved in a project like this, you just, the Pythons form part of your catalog of taste and uh, um, what what it is that forms you, I guess, as a director. Little, you know, certain influences that come from you know various quite wide and eclectic sort of different uh, forms of storytelling. And I mean, we were talking about it quite a lot. What it is that the Pythons sort of gave British humour. Um, I do think it's actually really, really. It, it sounds sort of. It doesn't sound that important, but I certainly think that if you consider that in, in the seventies, guys in their in their twenties, um, you know, they they could be in their mid twenties and were already starting to dress like their fathers and have serious jobs and start families and become sort of retiring their retiring their youth in a way and hanging up their youth. 
Um, and certainly the sort of the comedy that was on TV and everything was much more much more conservative and adult. And, um, and I think what the Pythons did, and the Goons possibly started it, but, um, but the Pythons certainly sort of exploded the idea that you could, that as adults you could still be silly and have fun and examine um, examine serious subjects, I suppose, but with, with satire and humour, and you could poke fun at things without being necessarily intent, without being offensive, I guess, um, or, or without wishing to offend, just by being, just by having fun. And I think that they allowed sort of young adults to sort of retain a sort of youthful glee in comedy and humour and fun. I think that's quite a massive thing that they did, certainly for British comedy, and I think that that probably then um, was absorbed into sort of cinema, if we say Gilliam and um, and you know that 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 sort of irreverence, I think, is is what is is you know is, is has been their sort of legacy, really. Is there anything about Holy Flying Circus that I forgot to ask you about that you think is pretty key or good story? <laughs> I, I mean, I I just think it was the it, it, it's funny when you when you start a process like that. I think that the first thing, certainly from my personal experience, was that the moment I sort of took it on. All anyone said to me was sort of good luck in a slightly sort of not exactly threatening way, but it did seem like we'd suddenly taken on slightly more than maybe we could chew because because of their standing in in uh, I guess in British comedy um, history, um, and you suddenly realise just what an undertaking it is that you've taken on, and 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 I think that what we what we ended up doing with it was that we. It allowed us to have a lot of fun, I suppose, in a way that you don't really get uh, the opportunity with a lot, certainly in television and even in sort of any long format where you can just have fun. Um, and I think that the fact that we were able to have such fun with the characters and with the making of everything, I think that's partly partly why it was, uh, you know, the, 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 the relative success it did have was partly because of that, because it's enjoyable to see people having fun when they make things, just like when you watch the Pythons you're always constantly aware that they it seemed like a lot of fun what they were doing and making it seem like a lot of fun. And I think that's part of the enjoyment of the viewer when you see, when that starts to come across in the material and on screen. And that's, I suppose, my sort of memory of making it. Beyond that, I don't know if there are any other stories I can divulge. <laughs> <laughs> well, did the BBC ever try to dial you back and go, yeah, you know, might want to go... Uh... Take a little easy there. Oh, I mean, we we had we there were some hoops that had to be jumped through. But then I think that it's quite it's quite a tricky it's quite a tricky subject. Certainly in terms of um, lawyers and things like that. When you're dealing with real living people, I think that everyone suddenly at some point gets you know scripts can get signed off, and then you see the reality of these people on screen. And because the, the fantastic we cut the cast we had did such a good job of it. I think the moment people see these characters come to life, everyone gets a little bit nervous and jumpy and thinks, my God, they're on screen, it's here, it's real. And I think there were a few little um, moments of nerves. Um, and certainly there were, there were a few little things that we had to iron out to make sure that we weren't going to offend anyone or end up in the wrong place legally is possibly the most diplomatic thing I can probably say about the experience but you know what it was never really we were always fully supported by the BBC um, and and it felt like uh, and it felt like in the end we had all the pythons on board as well is probably the best way of um, um, concluding it. As for yourself, uh, what are you currently working on or what do you have coming up? I'm working on uh, an equally tricky uh, tonal high wire 
act. It's this thing called um, Kill Your Friends by an author called John Niven, who's also written the screenplay. Um, and it's about uh, an A&R guy in the uh, late 1990s, uh, in a British music A&R guy. Um, and yeah, and that's been shot, and we're in the process of editing it. Thanks, Owen Harris, for coming on the show. You can find out more about his film, Holy Flying Circus, over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we are back, and we are talking about Monty Python's Life of Brian. I'm curious, did either of you guys watch the special Not the Messiah? I watched part of it, but when I realized that it was nothing more than a concert, I kind of got disinterested. I watched maybe like 10 minutes of it. And then I turned it off. What exactly are you talking about? It was this special that they recorded with the what at the Royal Albert Hall with the London Philharmonic, and it was kind of related to Life of Brian, but I didn't really get the connections. I just knew that probably it would end with uh, "Always Look on the Bright Side of Life," but I didn't make it that far at all. It was Eric Idle. I saw Idle and Palin. I don't know if the rest of the Pythons were there, but I really I couldn't give it very much at all because the songs, the song that I heard just wasn't that good. Yeah, it was sort of this, um, I guess, like concert film of songs and and whatnot. It kind of, in a way, in in although Spamalot has a full plot as a musical. It kind of reminded me of maybe like what they did with that, you know, the idea of writing songs and creating it in the structure. And what I saw was the first, like, I think I saw the same thing you did, maybe like the first 15 minutes or something. And originally I thought it was going to be a documentary, but when I turned it on, I'm like, I'm not really in the mood to watch Eric Idle uh, squeeze a couple of dollars more out of Python. (laughs) Because it seems like he's the main one who keeps going back to the well all the time. He's the entrepreneur, though I did, they are on tour. And I did hear uh, someone made reference the idea that whenever somebody goes out on tour, one somebody there needs money. <laughs> and there was a news item recently about uh, John Cleese getting divorced. So there's a spe- oh. the speculation is that they're on the road because John Cleese is getting divorced again. But don't quote me. Well, sorry, we already did. <laughs> You're on the record now. <laughs> I I found it funny in going back to Holy Flying Circus that there's the they're talking about um what was it Jesus Christ Superstar and it's like let's take an existing story and just add some songs to it and uh I was it's like they cut back to Eric Idle at that moment and I was like okay is this kind of a reference to spam a lot <laughs> with this <laughs> But I liked Spam a lot, a lot. I have seen it. I guess I've only seen it the one time. I wanted to see it when it when it was out in Vegas, but didn't see it there. I saw it just down at the Masonic. Enjoyed it a lot, but um, yeah, the, it, that is uh, definitely night and day with this "Not the Messiah" thing. So I, I believe the full t- title is "Not the Messiah." He's a very naughty boy. I saw Spam a lot in Grand Rapids. They allow that there. I'm sorry. They allowed it. They there. allow that. They allow wow. it there. It was at the Van Andel, uh, whatever the thing is downtown. But it was a really weird audience. It's an unusual thing for a fan of Monty Python to see that because you could be seeing it with blue-haired types and uh, people who just 
want to catch a Broadway show, you know, and it's a really interesting dynamic within the audience to watch Spam a lot. Yeah, because I'm sure there's a lot of people that came in who didn't know Monty Python or maybe didn't even know the film Holy Grail. So they weren't going to get some of the in jokes and little, you know, to hit to the ribs with the uh, elbow that uh, are in there for the fans. Now to me, now to me, nice, 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 nice. Now to me, sign them out, now to me. All right, yeah, yeah. Then there's the other fan. Uh, I mean, they're touring now. And, well, I was talking with Rick Menor about this, and, he, you know, we both feared the idea that if you go to a Monty Python show now, you're going and the audience is just going to be doing all the bits while simultaneously while they're doing all the bits, if all it is is, like, you know, doing greatest hits more or less i had a similar situation when i saw the kids in the hall i've seen them twice live and they have done things where they'll bring up sketches from the show that people would know but then they'll also like tell the audience to shut the hell up if they start <laughs> if they start like mouthing too loudly the the punch lines and stuff and i remember when i saw them at the royal oak music theater there was one guy in the first row or something who turned around and tried to get a selfie with them they like stopped what they were doing and said no please continue go ahead you know and made like a whole bit out of this guy who tried to get a selfie with <laughs> the kids in the hall on the stage <laughs> well it's kind of interesting that python would at this point in time inspire the same kind of idolatry that they're sending up in Life of Brian where people would just be repeating en masse everything they're saying. <laughs> this parrot is no more he is an ex-parrot <laughs> when we talk about life of brian and we did you know have kind of devolved into other aspects of python here um where do you sort of see it fits within the arc of all their stuff the films there's there's four films uh you talked about something completely different mike which you've seen which to me is like a greatest hits package of the TV show. And then there's what I would consider three narrative films, which is Holy Grail, Life of Brian, and then Meaning of Life, although Meaning of Life is kind of odd uh, at times uh, because it is so episodic. Where does sort of do you, where do you sort of see this fit into everything that they that they have done? Well, I just want to say that now for something completely different is very much a greatest hits, but there's there's little differences. It's kind of like ordering a cheeseburger in, in Europe. It's it's there's there are little differences there that really kind of stand out for me. Some of the animations uh, go in different ways. Some of the skits go in slightly different ways and to me it feels like kind of they took a lot of the skits from the show and really kind of polished them up and they gave them a little bit more um oomph with the production values and things this wasn't this uh you know a sound stage that looks like a you know it was being shot on a, a, a bbc sound stage kind of thing so if i appreciate and now for something completely different as being just like the greatest hits, but with a little bit extra. It's like that, you know, the reason why you bought DVDs back in the day is because you got the extras, and this one for me is like the enhanced version of the television show. I think, going back to something I said earlier, Python's targets in their humor are people with ext extreme belief systems who take themselves too seriously. I think Life of Brian was a movie that they're going to make sooner or later because it's a perfect distillation of that idea of people who, with extreme belief systems who take themselves seriously. I answer ultimate statement if you want to 
you know, unless that sounds a little bit too <laughs> far out there, but but I, I do think that it was within them all along to send up religion. And, uh, you know, they were going to do it eventually one way or another. And this is a distillation of all that. Yeah, for me... Life of Brian is kind of, I don't want to say it's the nail in the coffin or the nail through, you know, the, the Messiah's hand. It's just, it's kind of like, for me, this is the ultimate statement of Python. It's like, it all seems to kind of come together. You have somewhat skits, you know, the, like we were saying earlier, the stuff with uh, pilot um, feels more like a skit, but it is integrated into this larger film. It's more cohesive than um, Holy Grail. I won't say that it's as gut-bustingly funny as Holy Grail. I think some of the surrealism in the way that these odd things kind of come together in Holy Grail is works even better. But for me, this is kind of like, you know, this is the ultimate narrative film from Monty Python, and it just really kind of, you know, culminates their work for me. For me, the funniest stuff in Holy Grail is funnier than the funniest stuff in Life of Brian. But Life of Brian is just playing a better movie. Yeah. Yeah, and I appreciate them both in their own right. Yes. Yeah, yeah I would agree with that as well. And then, for some reason, Meaning of Life just got played so much in my house growing up. I don't know what it was about that, but it just seems that we would watch that constantly. But I do agree that out of what I would call the three narrative films – that Life of Brian is the apex of it, and then it's sort of those two, for me, are sort of on equal footing uh, because I I basically know both of them forwards and backwards. Yes. Yes. Since we're talking about Life of Brian, and it does sort of play in this uh, realm of the biblical film and movies that send up the Bible, uh, are there any other movies out there that uh, send up Jesus or the Bible that uh, you think people should check out that – Obviously, you're not Monty Python. Oh, God, that's a great question, but I have no answer for it. <laughs> well, the one that I don't need, I thought you knew. <laughs> well, I, I thought, Mike, you would jump in on this one because I remember us talking about how we've always wanted to do God Spoke. Yes, and God Spoke is pretty great. Yeah. That is the, uh, the, the mockumentary about the making of the, the adaptation of one of the best selling books ever, the Bible. And you even have an appearance from our boy Soupy Sales in there. As Moses, who comes down off the mountain carrying, uh, the Ten Commandments and a six pack of Coke because, uh, product placement. It is a film. It's a film. <laughs> Certainly that. Uh, based on, uh, one of the most beautiful of all the religious books, um, the Bible. Now. In the tradition of the great Bible epics. It's just, uh, right. Like no other role I've done. Jesus um, Christ! Yes. No, the disciples do the set. Let's go! Exactly. <laughs> I seem to recall, like, in the 70s, there were, like, R-rated movie or something. Uh, some, ah, oh, jeez. Unless you guys help me out with this, I wish I hadn't brought it up, but... It seems well, there was uh, Wakefield Pools the Bible, which was a porn adaptation of okay, the Bible. There have been porn films, I'm pretty sure that that have been based on the Bible or or something in you know probably the last twenty years. Is that what you're going for? No, I, I seem to recall, yeah, you know, uh, way back in the seventies, and of course there was Hail Mary, uh, the Godar film. The one that I can think of off the top of my head, and it's not specifically about Jesus, but it plays a lot on the Bible in certain scenes from the Bible is Robert Downey Sr.'s Greaser's Palace, in yes. which Alan Arbus is 
basically the Messiah. He's walking on water and doing all this stuff, and he keeps bringing seaweed head greasers' son back from the dead. Keeps yes. like Lazarus and all this. So there's all these like quotations to the Bible, but it's not specifically biblical film. I have to say that um, the real Old Testament works really well. That was a film from 2003, and it was a parody of the real world from MTV, but um, done as the Bible. So there are all these like little segments of kind of the infighting and things going on, and they have that whole... Um, kind of uh, uh, trope that they used on the real world of those confessional interviews that they use now across the board for all reality shows. I remember specifically when they were uh, interviewing Edith, who is Lot's wife, and she's like, hi, I'm Edith, Lot's wife. Yes, I do have a name. (laughs) (laughs) And they just kind of cherry-picked like some of the best Bible bits in there. There are bits and pieces like uh, from History of the World, the Mel Brooks film. Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15, 10, 10 commandments for all to obey. Jews in space. (laughs) Well, fantastico, gentlemen. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Rome before Christ. After Fellini. is right we continue down the path of films related to ancient rome and find fellini along the way make sure to join us next week when we talk about the film satyricon before we go i want to thank roger christian 
Will Yap and Owen Harris for coming on the show. You can find out more about their work over at our website, projection-booth.com. I also want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Ken Stanley, for coming on the show. Thanks for making your first appearance with us. So what is the latest with you and your musical outfit, Ken's Loud Band? Well, we are trying to finish our next, we call them CDs, I guess they're songs nowadays, uh, that we'll post in some form or another soon. We have stuff that's already available, like on iTunes and through TuneCore and whatnot, but we are making progress on a new collection. And uh, that includes, uh, you You actually sent me a, uh, a song I believe we're going to feature in this episode. Uh, the Jesus is a solo effort. <laughs> I would want to you know, blame that voice that on everybody else in the band so, that's what you're referring to right yeah okay <laughs> but as for the band those who don't know um about your band uh tell us a little bit about it doug garley plays drums he's kind of like a local legend around here glenn cayley is the production guy the, he works hard on on making the recordings we've been around for ages as kind of like uh it's kind of like poker night because it's tough for guys in our age group to go out and get gigs anymore. So we make the music for our, for ourselves, basically. But, you know, we believe and there are some people who uh, like our sensibilities. We have humor and hooks. <laughs> basically, that's it. And uh, we believe that we have an audience. It's just that they have the sensibility that they're glad we're out here, but they're not really all that interested in making the effort to actually listen to us. So that's who we're, our audience is. So you're like uh, like one of the odd um, you know messiahs trying to sell his wares in the marketplace. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> no, if we don't take ourselves that seriously, we're not gonna you know beat ourselves up for not being gigantic. But we suggest that your listeners give us a listen. I suggest it too because I think uh, the album that came out what was it three or four years ago, "Good for the Bones," I think is an excellent album. Thank you so much. So if you haven't checked that out, of course we'll have some links up there where you can check out more of uh, Ken's music and all of that fun stuff at projection-booth.com. So thanks again for coming on the show, and uh, also we can find links to all the latest work and connections of this week's film over at projection-booth.com. And hey, while you're there, uh, why don't you go? over to iTunes, go over to the page there, leave us a review, leave us some stars, because, um, you know, uh, while we're not the Messiah, uh, we're definitely some uh, very naughty boys. Some things in life are bad, they can really make you mad, other things just make you swear and curse, when you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble, give a whistle. And this'll help things turn out for the best And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the light side of life If life seems jolly rotten, there's something you've forgotten And that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing when you're feeling in the dumps, don't be silly chumps. Just purse your lips and whistle, that's the thing. Hey, always look on the bright side of life. Come on. Always look on the bright side of life. For life is quite absurd, and death's the final word. 
you must always face the curtain with a bow. Forget about your seat, give the audience a grin. Enjoy it, it's your last chance and out. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true. You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go. Just remember that the last laugh is on you. And always look on the bright side of Records available in the foyer. So I must put a limb as well, you know. Jesus, 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 Jesus,
needs to know as much as I know. No one needs to think as much as I do. No one needs to learn as much as I have. If they do, they are pretentious! Thank you, sir. Thank you. Oh, but me bloody life story. There's no pleasing some people. That's just what Jesus said, sir. <laughs>